This, can you hear me okay? Terrific. Well, uh, thank you everybody for joining um, with this uh, auspicious occasion and thanks to CSIS um, for uh, inviting me and the panel uh, to participate. <coughs> and wanted to give a special, of course, congratulations to the Korea Chair and to Victor uh, for all the job uh, that you've done over the past decade now. Uh, probably seems like it went quickly, but um, for us journalists, I'm a reporter at the Washington Post. Um, Victor and the Korea Chair have been uh, a valuable, valuable resource, um, uh, both obviously in the past two years, but even before that, uh, I was bugging uh, Victor and, and others uh, in the program um, uh, quite often, maybe many times you didn't necessarily want to, to be bugged, um, but for terrific analysis and to help sort of walk me through uh, what's happening. And uh, so I wanted to, to take a time out to thank, uh, thank the Korea Chair for that and to congratulate you for such a successful uh, 10 years. Um, I am a reporter with the Washington Post and I cover the White House. Uh, and I've been doing that for about seven or eight years, first under the Obama administration, and now the past two and a half with President Trump. Um, it has been uh, quite an experience uh, shifting between the two. Uh, but one thing I focused on the entire time uh, that's kind of a through line is Asia policy um, because it's so important um, starting with uh, President Obama's uh, pivot to Asia. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's my uh, great honor to be hosting this panel. Um, I wanted to um, say that we'll be discussing, I know there's three panels today, so we'll be discussing the US-ROK alliance. Uh, and you know, as a journalist, uh, I like to be very topical. Um, but let me introduce the panel and then we'll have sort of a healthy discussion uh, about where we are. It's an auspicious week, of course, because President Trump is headed to uh, the region, first to Osaka for the G20, as you know, uh, and then to Seoul for an important uh, summit with Moon Jae-in. Uh, and we'll sort of ask the panelists quite a bit about that. Uh, I'll be on the trip along with several of my colleagues, uh, and I leave tomorrow. So I'm um, very much looking forward to that. Uh, of course, we have Victor Cha, uh, hardly needs an introduction, here to my left. Um, Victor founded the Korea Chair in 2009. As we mentioned, is served uh, after having served as the Director of Asian Affairs in the National Security Council uh, in the Bush administration um, from 2004 to 2007. In that role, of course, Victor was very involved with the uh, six-party talks and other negotiations with North Korea uh, that have predated uh, where we are today. He's also of five books, including The Impossible State, uh, North Korea, Past and Future, and I believe, Victor, uh, you'll see him quite a bit on NBC and MSNBC as an analyst. Um, we have, uh, of course, right next to Victor is uh, Ambassador Joseph Yun. Um, thank you for, for joining. Um, he probably needs also very little introduction. Um, Joe is currently a senior advisor to the Asia program at the U U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, before that, he served uh, 33 years uh, as a diplomat. Uh, and for two years, you, you well know, uh, was from 2016 to 2018, was the U.S. Special Envoy to North Korea. Uh, and he was a key player, of course, in reestablishing communication with Pyongyang uh, through the New York Channel, and then, of course, traveling to North Korea to help secure the release and ultimately secure the release of uh, Otto Warmbier. Um, and uh, so thank you, Joe, for all your, your service. Uh, I think Joe is also a regular contributor to CNN, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Competitor, so we'll have a little face-off here. Um, I think next to... Next to uh, Ambassador Yun, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Jun Hyun Kim, uh, who's a professor at Hangdong University's Department of International Studies. Uh, has conducted extensive research on the U.S.-ROK alliance, uh, as well as the inter-Korea relationship on the peninsula. Uh, he's pre previously served as the Director of Security and Diplomacy Center, uh, an independent think tank, and he spent time prior to that 
as a visiting Fulbright scholar at George Mason University, not far from where I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, so thank you, uh, Dr. Kim. Uh, we have next, um, of course, another uh, diplomat, uh, Joy Yamamoto, who last fall took over as the uh, director of the Korea desk at the State Department, uh, a job she assumed after serving as the Minister Counselor for Economic Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. Um, so Joy is obviously very much involved in all of the things that we'll be talking about today. Very happy to have Joy uh, with us. Before that, um, she had previously also served as a diplomat in Indonesia and China and other locations around the world. Um, and also, uh, close to my heart, was a former newspaper reporter. Uh, so she knows all my tricks. And uh, Joy, you're on the record today. Because <laughs> this is a big crowd and being broadcast. Um, and finally, we have Dr. Uh, Sung Hyun Lee, uh, Senior Research Fellow at Sejong Institute in Korea, uh, who also serves as the President of the Korean Nuclear Policy Society. Dr. Lee served as the Director General for Policy Planning, the Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2011 to 2013, He's also authored numerous papers and analyses, uh, including a summer, summary of the US DPRK summit in Hanoi. Um, so thank you to our panelists. Um, we're just gonna jump right into a, a dialogue rather than have opening presentations, which I think sometimes slows things down. And you know, as a journalist, I mentioned, uh, we're, we're interested right now in what's, what's happening. And uh, no better time to have this panel than the president's trip. And I wanted to sort of just get right at it. I think there's a lot of, interest now uh, after what seemed to be a dark period uh, in our diplomacy, in our dialogue after the collapse of the Hanoi summit, which I was at, um, about what's, what's gonna happen, how to get this talks back on track. And now we've seen what tends to be the path with this uh, president and this administration, which is sort of a direct leader-to-leader -leader engagement. Uh, you've seen the exchange of the so-called love letters that President Trump might call them. Um, but most, you know, first uh, Kim Jong-un apparently sent a letter um, to the president. Um, and then you saw around his birthday, and then you saw a reciprocal letter just being uh, reported over the weekend, uh, which Kim Jong-un received apparently from President Trump. Uh, the White House has confirmed that letter was sent, uh, and that, that letter con contained, according to the state news agency, excellent content that the, uh, that the chairman is considering. And so that raises a lot of intriguing possibilities. I know there's been a lot of uh, discussion about what to make of this sum uh, summit between Moon uh, and President uh, Trump coming up, but maybe I could just start with Victor uh, and we'll just go down the line a little bit about what we think about a third summit. Do we see now that these exchange has sort of renewed that idea and that President Trump seen, we don't know a lot about what was in the letter, but do we see a third summit and what does that mean and what, what would it take for us to get to that place? Sure. Um, well, uh, thanks, thanks for the question. The, the other thing you should all know before we get started, um, David didn't properly introduce himself because what he is most <laughs> known for in the Korea policy expert community is he's the only journalist that we know that has asked a question of Kim Jong-un <laughs> at a press conference <laughs> and gotten an answer. I joke now on my tombstone, it'll say he shouted a question at the most ruthless <laughs> dictator and lived for a while to tell about it. Um, I did write a story about that moment. I was in the press pool in Hanoi. I had been in Singapore uh, for the first summit. I was not in the pool, which is the small group of 13 reporters who are allowed into the photo ops. Everybody cannot get in, so that pool then, uh, both television, radio, and print, me, uh, writes a summary and sends it out of what happens, of course. So that's, I was very uh, uh, disappointed not to be in the pool for uh, the Singapore summit. I had to sort of remain in the hotel and hope for some briefings. I actually went to Kim Jong-un's hotel when he first arrived, just so I, could, I waited like about four hours uh, with ordinary folks on the streets right off the shopping corridor 
uh, in the hot sun to just get a glimpse of the motorcade and the running bodyguards uh, and wrote a sort of a scene piece about why we, you know, why we wait on the street corner with our kids playing iPad to see this ruthless dictator and get a glimpse. Uh, but I didn't, that was as close as I came uh, to seeing him then. Uh, and so I was very thrilled that we were, the Washington Post was the pool reporter for um, uh, Hanoi. And so when we went in, we had sort of, as a group said, we, we need to try to shout something to Kim. And President Trump engages so much that after sort of the quick photo op, reporters immediately shouted to President Trump and he answered. And then I sort of had positioned myself closer to Kim and was just sort of keeping an eye on him, trying to make some eye contact. And then uh, when I heard Trump stop talking, I finally shouted, Chairman Kim, uh, do you feel good about a deal? And he kind of looked at me and I did one of these, feel good. And as I wrote in the subsequent piece, you know, now you, know, you get taken to task if you write something about being you know, too chummy with a dictator or why are you, why are you normalizing this guy. And, but my point was this is a universal sign of feel good, you feel good. And I, I didn't know what would happen, but I, it was sort of like the time slows down and you're, you're in the moment. And then I saw, if you look at the replay, Trump's um, uh, interpreter leans over. They both have an interpreter and Trump's interpreter leans over and, and I guess interprets my question or indicates it's for him. And then he responds. And so I was thrilled. And in the moment, as I read at the end of the piece, I didn't realize sort of that no one had ever done that or had gotten a response. But uh, you know, we were quickly ushered out as they didn't want to keep letting us have a chance and then rushed back to send the pool report out. And that's when I uh, you know, then saw on Twitter and so on that, that this had made some, some big news. And you know, what he said was, I feel, you know, I feel hopeful, but um, you know, we feel hopeful, but we're not there yet. And so at the time, we were assuming there would be some sort of interim deal. That's all signs had sort of led to that. But in, you know, in, in reality, he wasn't there yet. Uh, they, they may be hopeful. And I think my colleague Anna Fifield used the quote in, at the end of her book on Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, that hopeful feeling, we'll see. Um, but that was the experience. But I'd love to see if my colleague, uh, you know, Sung Min Kim on this trip or, or subsequent uh, may have another chance because it seems certainly that another summit doesn't seem like we're close to that or we should be close to that. But this is a president who does things differently and we're in, coming up on a campaign. So I'd love to maybe go yeah. down the line briefly about. So, um, so I, I feel like there's, and I, I, I want to echo what Rich Armitage said in the beginning. There's something in the air, right? I think there's something in the air. After, the Hanoi summit, there is basically no dialogue taking place. Um, all the efforts at the working level to make contact um, were not, uh, were, were just going into a black hole. And then all of a sudden this birthday card letter comes from Chairman Kim to, to Trump, uh, which he then responded to. Um, <clears throat> and then um, Xi Jinping goes to Pyongyang, right? And so whenever you see high-level letter and then the Chinese and the North Koreans meeting, that's kind of like the setup for a third meeting. Now, I, I have no inside information on this, but that, those pieces are pieces that we, we, we generally see before uh, there's an, another high-level meeting. In addition to that, based on my experience as a staffer setting up trips by the president, it's quite unusual, I, I feel, this time for President Trump to be spending two nights in, in Korea. Off of, the, off of the G20 summit in Osaka. Usually when we do these trips, and there are many in the audience who, who know this well, usually it's an RON in Japan, and then you, early in the morning there's a trip to Korea, you do the troops, you do whatever, and then you move on. So this is, this is a lot of time in Korea. I think there's no doubt that the president will go to the DMZ, because he he's never been there, and the last time he went he couldn't go. Uh, General Brooks was there at the time, and, and uh, 
there was a lot of, it was like really bad weather that day, really bad fog that day. So he couldn't make that trip. I think every U.S. president that's going to say anything about Korea has to visit the DMZ to see, uh, to see um, you know, the actual division and how, how armed it is. Um, so I'm pretty certain he's going to do that. And then the question is, is he going to make a big statement at the DMZ? Is he going to do it himself? Is he going to do it with... Um, with President Moon, um, are there going to be other surprises? This president likes surprises, and um, so there's something. You know, I feel like there's something going on. We're not really sure what, but it looks like there's an effort really to reset after Hanoi, uh, and maybe not a third summit immediately, but at least a reset that will allow the working level to re-engage. The problem is, is that as long as both sides don't put a lot of or don't empower the working level to make agreements, we're going to fall into the same trap that we fell in in Hanoi, which is working level meetings on everything but the most important issue that is left to the two leaders and the two leaders can't, can't make a deal. And I feel like right now it looks like we're headed down that road and what the president did on Iran in terms of pulling back at the very last minute with regard to um, retaliatory military strike for the downing of the drone only reinforces the view in North Korea that you got to talk to the leader. And so that means that the working level are not going to be able to make agreements that can then set up a successful summit. So that's what I worry about. Joe, what do you think uh, would put us on a path uh, to a summit that makes more sense than maybe a rushed meeting, certainly this trip? Uh, and what kind of time frame do you see as more sensible? Right. I think fundamentally there is something to the relationship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And it's kind of a mixture of uh, both uh, admiration for each other, but the information set is quite asymmetric. Uh, Kim Jong-un knows everything there is to know about Donald Trump. He knows exactly how the U.S. government operates, what his uh, key staffers, whether it's Pompeo or Bolton, are like. Uh, now, Donald Trump doesn't know anything about what is going on in Pyongyang. There is the mismatch. And so I think, you know, in my experience, uh, North Koreans study Washington like anything. I remember back when I was in government, I think it was in November of 2016, I was talking with a North Korean, I was trying to set up a meeting for my then boss, Tillerson, uh, to go to Pyongyang. And they said, no, we really don't want Tillerson, we think he's gonna get fired, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, of course they were completely right, he did get fired about four months later. Uh, but the underlying, the underlying rationale is, of course, we all know, historically it's true, that North Korean side have been wanting summits. Now the difference is the U.S. side, or Donald Trump, wants summit. So I have no doubt there will be a third summit. There will be a third summit probably sooner rather than later. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's what will make it a success? Of course, uh, Victor is right. There has to be work done at a working level so that there are no surprises. But I'm you know, relatively optimistic. If you look at what was on the table in Hanoi, 
there was quite a bit on the table, you know, uh, from North Korean side giving up Yongbyon. They both had agreed essentially to open liaison offices. And so the key issues like definition of denuclearization, how much denuclearization, for how much sanctions were, were, were left out. But I do think you can reach a next level of a deal relatively quickly. So in that sense, it's in both their interests to have a summit, put this to a place where it is sustainable at least for a while. I mean, Donald Trump's main goal is, of course, to win the 2020 November election. So get through that. I mean, you know, fortunately for Kim Jong-un, he doesn't face an election. So, <laughs> so I think you know, you're looking at a short-term or medium-term path that puts on, uh, puts on stable uh, route. Dr. Kim, can you give us a sense of how the Blue House, how the South Korean government has been um, trying to work with both sides? Um, to try to re-engage them, uh, because we know that there had been very little communication after Hanoi between Washington and Pyongyang. Uh, and then what is the view in Seoul about uh, moving forward with that leader-to-leader -leader dialogue and how so important South, that yeah, is? South Korean government has no choice but to be positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right. And actually, you know, as you said, after four months of like, uh, um, like a no move, and animosity, exchange of animosity. And something is going, going on. It looks like something is going on. And like a, she's, she's uh, stay visit to, to North Korea and Kim Yo-jung's uh, you know, funeral visit yeah. Yeah. and Panmunjom. And happened to be one year anniversary of Singapore. But to, to me, it's not really, uh, any of these is not a game changer. It's like a building up because and of course, South Korea is hopeful uh, that North Korea is coming out and to meet South Korean president, just like happened in last May. It's actually 20 hours before the second you know, one-shot meeting. Actually, they uh, couldn't meet, uh, I think, on May 26. So South Korea government hopes that it happened again. But the thinking of the, the situation right now from North Korean perspective, they're still angry, and uh, still they're devastated. Uh, pretty much they recoup themselves, themselves, but it's not ready to come out. And their perception is like this. This is not our turn to give away. This is the turn that either, uh, you know, U.S. changed the calculation, uh, or South Korea is, is trying to persuade uh, America to their perspective. Definitely they are going to be, I think, third uh, summit, but to me it's not in, in like uh, sooner. So I think it's more like a second half because they think even if they are decided to come out to, to the negotiate table, they need to rebuild the position to have a better you know, deal. They don't want a re sense. repeat of what we had. In yeah, that's yeah. exactly. And regarding this, this love letters or you know, beautiful <laughs> letter, an excellent letter. Actually, this is, this is actually what I heard from a very reliable source. You know, during the eight month of, no, six month of deadlock last year, uh, there, was, there were five unknown secret personal letters between these 
actually from Kim Jong-un to Trump. That means I think this is, is in a way special communication method. So I don't think there is a really a game-changing some kind of proposal. That even though they, they think it's interesting, they try to maintain this whole table, not in this kind of letter to put in a special, you know, some kind of concession or deal. I want to skip Joy briefly, but only because she, as you can understand, is in a very sensitive position, being right in the middle of all this, and has some limitations on what she can say about North Korea. We're going to get right back, though, come right back to her uh, about the uh, USROK alliance, but I wanted to skip to Dr. Lee just to build off of that and say, what do we think about these letters? Usually, I think, and Victor may know, uh, give us a better sense of it, but these letters are pretty formulaic, uh, maybe have a lot of... Um, uh, traditionally, in diplomatic letters, may have, have a lot of flowery language. We, we know that President Trump released one letter uh, last summer that he got from Kim Jong-un, which was very, very flowery, but didn't say a whole lot, as you say. Um, we doubt that there's a lot of detailed uh, uh, you know, information necessarily, but I wanted to see um, if Dr. Lee had some thoughts about you know, what we think about uh, what could be accomplished with this kind of letters between the leaders. Um, and you know, the President Trump, so proud of these, he brings reporters into the Oval Office and he'll have staff bring, they're on hand, he'll have them bring them out uh, and let reporters read them, uh, which we saw in the Time Magazine interview uh, late last week, uh, in which I think the reporter attempted to take a photo, I don't know if you saw that in the, in, the, in the transcript, take a photo of one of the letters and the president got so upset he said, you know, I, I, you can read it, but you can't take a picture of it. Uh, and at one point sort of suggested the, the reporter could be put in prison if he, did, if he violated that rule, uh, which the reporter said, are you threatening with prison time? So it, these letters are very important to the president. He seems to want them to get out, but clearly not violate uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, confidence, I guess. Um, but I, I thought you could tell us more, a little bit more about what you think is trying to be accomplished, other than just praise to each other, unless that's it. Well, I would say that uh, at least it's a good sign that uh, because both sides uh, want to continue uh, the mode of dialogue uh, between two governments. And it is one thing, but I don't know uh, what's the actual content maybe inside that letters. But at the same time, uh, since uh, Halloween summit, uh, contrary, contrary to many people's uh, uh, concern, whether uh, this dialogue process may be totally collapsed. Mm -hmm. But instead, we see many signs that at least we have some momentum mm -hmm. to continue this dialogue. So I think that's already a good sign. But it's one thing. And uh, perhaps if actual or visible progress is not made in the coming uh, days or months, then uh, perhaps uh, it may be a desert bit, okay? we, without much actual result it will be another disappointing round of a, just a, a signal or a gesture uh, that uh, uh, both sides want to, uh, to continue dialogue. But eventually, uh, the actual progress or actual visible uh, steps, what, what kind of step, actual step, those people will take in the coming days. They will tell us the truth about uh, whether or not we'll uh, success in this denuclearization talks with North Korea. And I want to come back in a minute to what we know about, what we can infer uh, about some of the changes that have been reported about North Korea's negotiating team, President Trump sort of uh, contradicting uh, John Bolton at times on North Korea, what that tells us about where this might be headed. But first, if Joy, uh, I'm wondering, since we're on the precipice of this trip, I know it's tricky to talk you know, or not talk about um, direct dealings with North Korea. I'm wondering if you could just set the stage a little bit about this trip um, in terms of just the relationship between President Trump President Moon. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of uh, work by Prime Minister Abe 
uh, for the whole two and a half years, but certainly recently with the state visit, and now as the host of this big G20 summit. He's in the spotlight uh, and has you know, continued this uh, diplomacy with President Trump to try to flatter him and work his, uh, his uh, relationship and try to stay as you know, his, his sort of bestie uh, in Asia. Um, and you know, certainly has a different view about you know, how they should proceed um, with this dialogue with North Korea, more skeptical of it. I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of what this trip entails for, for President Moon and President Trump's relationship. Uh, get a little bit maybe beyond even just uh, talking about North Korea. Are there other things they're going to talk about? Uh, and maybe a little bit about why he is maybe spending more than one night um, and on the agenda. So he's spending one night. Is it still one night? Okay. Oh, one night. Um, so, um, so there's no question that the priority is the negotiated uh, denuclearization in North Korea. There's no question that this is the most important issue that's facing both the ROK and the United States. And there's no question that this will be the number one topic um, for President Moon's uh, meetings with President Trump. But what we should also remember is that uh, what they will do is, and what they will commit to is the enduring, strong, uh, bilateral relationship, the alliance. And that alliance is more than just the DPRK issues. Uh, it is about um, showing the world that together these two countries, these two governments can do extraordinary things, whatever they want. And you know, North Korea is of course one great example, the fact that we're working together to engage North Korea. But beyond that, we've also shown that we can work on economic issues together. Uh, we negotiated changes to the Korea-US free trade agreement uh, that were difficult, but we managed uh, to come up with uh, amendments that are mutually beneficial to both countries. Um, and we've also made a deep commitment to work together in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, both under President Moon's new Southern policy and under President Trump's Indo-Pacific Indo strategy. Uh, we're finding that there are synergies between these two efforts uh, and based on the fact that we have very common values and a common approach to development assistance in South Asia and Southeast Asia. It's based on wanting an, a free and open Indo-Pacific region. Uh, it's based on the notion that you want to allow countries and enable countries to preserve their sovereignty, to develop in ways that they want to and not because they're being coerced into doing so. So I guess what I'm trying to emphasize um, is that this relationship is, is yes, about the DPRK, um, but please don't forget uh, that this relationship is much more, and, uh, and we should make a commitment to improve that, the alliance in so many ways across the board. Um, Ambassador Lippert and Congressman uh, Barry, um, I'll also mention this, that we cooperate on health, science and technology, uh, energy. So uh, I fully expect that this commitment to the bilateral alliance to these kinds of um, aspects of our alliance will be very much part of the conversation. Are there anything you can tell us about efforts to, you know, I don't think President Moon plays golf. Um, you know, we saw, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the pres this is a President uh, Trump who, puts a lot of uh, faith in sort of that interpersonal relationship, it seems like, uh, whether it's with our allies or uh, other leaders, uh, even Xi Jinping. Um, is there any, I mean, I don't need, on a trip like this, it's fairly quick. 
It's not a lot of time. I just don't know if there's any kind of relationship building beyond the sort of bilateral meetings, even the one-on-one, uh, that you build into something like this, even if you can't fully tell us what it is. I mean, do, do they have efforts to try to do that with, with uh, President Moon? So, um, so the uh, trip isn't fully set um, in terms of, um, I know it's, it feels like it's only a few days away, but, um, but believe me, they, they haven't fully um, settled on the schedule um, for this trip. Um, there's no question that there will be bilateral meetings, but um, there will be other activities, uh, hopefully something related to business economics, um, something related to the alliance, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, again, I, nothing's set, um, but the intent is, um, President Moon's in intent is to be with President Trump virtually every minute of, of this trip. Of the visit. Uh, I wanted to, I sort of hinted at this a little bit, but since uh, Dr. Lee talked a little bit about the limits of um, leader to leader um, negotiating, and I think we've, we've seen the limits over this time. Um, I'm wondering, uh, like I said, there's been plenty of reports about what happened with uh, the uncertain fate of um, Kim Jong-un's negotiating team. I think some of them may have been overblown, uh, but some may certainly have been authentic in that he seems to maybe have uh, wanted to start anew. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm wondering, even though we don't know exactly what those things are or what the, what the ultimate result is, I think there's been a sense that um, some of the reporting is probably accurate that he's made some changes. And I wanted to know, you know, there, people say, well, there, there's only one decision maker uh, in North Korea, and it's Kim Jong-un, and so you have to sort of deal with the leader. But I wonder if he's changing his team, what that could mean for potential uh, changes to their position, or uh, as, as some of our analysts have said, um, whether it's the U.S. turn to make some sort of significant um, concession, I guess, or what looks like some sort of movement and what that could be. And maybe we can just start with Victor here and go down the, down the line again. So I, I think there has been, you know, there ha clearly has been a change. I mean, Kim Young-chul and Kim Hyuk-chul were sort of the key people for, um, for um, the chairman in the, in the run-up to Hanoi. And, you know, clearly it was the first time that anybody had probably in his life ever said no to Chairman Kim Jong-un. And then these poor guys had to ride on the train for 60 hours with Kim Jong-un back from Hanoi, Vietnam to North Korea. They were probably in the last car in the bathroom for the entire 60 hours. <laughs> Couldn't have been an easy train ride back. Um, and uh, Kim Hyuk-chul, the, the, uh, the second in command, was actually, I, I knew him because he was on the um, six-party delegation. He was, one at the, you know, he was one of the junior members of the six-party delegation. Speaks very good English and everything. Um, you know, the papers are saying at least it's shifting back to the foreign ministry, Lee Young-ho and Che Sun-hee um, uh, as sort of the, the key count interlocutors. And I think that that's a good thing. I mean, if that's the case, it will certainly lend to more, much more fluid conversations between Pompeo and Began and, and their counterparts. Uh, Lee Young-ho, as many of you know, was uh, formerly the DPRK ambassador in London, uh, and he gave the best exposition in English I've ever heard by a North Korean about why North Korea need, needs nuclear weapons. It was almost persuasive. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Chae has them, and, and you know, Joe knows well, Chae probably has the most experience as a working level person on this because she's been involved in the negotiations and very intimately involved in the six party negotiations. So if there's anybody who understands somewhat the technical details, because at one po some point we have to get to the technical details of this. Um, she is probably the best equipped, but even in, I would say even in her case, 
she is not fully equipped to manage that sort of that sort of conversation. And the North Koreans have not yet brought to the table, you know, their are like DOE counterparts. They have not brought those sorts of people uh, um, uh, back to the table. So I think, I think overall the change is, 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 probably, is probably for the better. Um, what was the second part of your question? No, I'm just, uh, and what, I mean, just what, the, how, 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 it, how is it better in that, uh, you know, it, it sounds like from what I understood yeah. is that the US team would say something, even yeah. in the lead up to Hanoi with a very short timetable, you gotta get stuff done, and then everything would have to be sent back to Pyongyang yeah. and get some sort of clearance or guidance yeah. up to yeah. the chairman, yeah. and they thought everything was coming from Kim Jong-un. Yeah. I mean, is that gonna continue? Or? So I think that there, that will probably still continue, but at least with people like Yong Ha and Che Sunny, it, it can at least sound a little bit more fluid mm -hmm. in terms of the negotiation. Um, I think it'll be much easier to have side conversations because Again, because both of them are fluent in English, and I think it'll just give our negotiators a better feel of uh, the situation. And that, you know, that I think that's important. I think it was, I, I mean, I don't know, but my guess it was very stilted with Kim Yong Chol and Kim Hyuk Chol, um, uh, just because, they, you know, they are, um, you know, they're not really, they're not foreign, they're not diplomats, they're not foreign ministry people. They don't, they have not spent a lot of time outside the country. Given what we know about the ultimate positions of both sides in Hanoi that led to sort of the stalemate and the quick collapse of uh, the talks, and I, w I was the pool reporter there, we were waiting in the lunchroom, they were gonna have lunch. Um, you could see the placards laid out and everything, and all of a sudden the thing was 30 minutes delayed and we knew it was on the rocks and we didn't know how quickly it would be over, but uh, we got the surprise news. But I mean, Joe, what would be, um, if, if uh, what Dr. Lee was saying that, um, that Kim, felt you know, still upset and angry uh, about where that ended and doesn't want to repeat of this, I think which uh, Dr. Uh, Kim was saying as well. What is the step that the US could take to restore some sort of confidence that this thing can move forward? Um, so open question, but I wondered if you had thoughts about where the US might move um, to just sort of offer them enough to get them back to some sort of serious dialogue. I think at this point, uh, really the North Korean insistence is for sanctions relief. And so the question has to be, were US to offer sanctions relief, what is it that North Korea can offer? So this is what Hanoi, what's on the table, plus means. Plus for the US means some kind of sanctions relief, plus for North Korea means something on denuclearization. But going on a little bit of your, your earlier question about, I mean, if you think, you know, interagency fights in Washington are bad, you know, uh, it's a lot worse, yeah. you know. At least here, if you lose, you end up in a nice place like CSIS. Victor never lost. There, you're going to end up in a minimally re-education camp, you know, uh, and, 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 and that's not very pleasant. Uh, I do believe that, and I agree with Victor, that, that the whole negotiation team was discredited. This is the UFT, United Front Department team, was discredited, and now is moving back, you know, with essentially, you know, what, what, what you know, foreigner handling uh, MFA. I mean, that's bad news and good news, because they know the history they know what U.S. Can, will and will not do. And so the negotiations, I believe, are going to be more civil but tougher 
you know, mm. it will be a lot tougher because Lee Young Ho and Choi Sun Yee know exactly how far they can go without really angering the leader. I mean, to me, it's very interesting that there is in North Korea now fairly open debate in media, places like Rodong Shinmun and KCNA, on whether Kim Jong-un or, or, or North Korea should be negotiating this at all or rely on more traditional build our own defense. And so to me, it indicates that there isn't the complete control that you would expect from the, uh, from the leader. And so that has some legs, I think. And, and so it is critically important for them, for Kim Jong-un right now, that he save face. And whether U.S. can do anything to save that face, I don't know what it's going to take at this point. And that's why they need to have working group level meetings to probe each other what, so that they get at least the minimum package that satisfies both sides. Dr. Kim and Dr. Lee, I'm wondering if you could address a little bit of, I think um, we saw from President Moon, head of Hanoi, he was hopeful that the U.S. was moving towards some sort of you know, interim step or step-by-step -step sort of process. We saw the, the Stanford speech by Steve Began that seemed to suggest the U.S. was, you know, entertaining the idea of some sort of middle ground. Reports of, you know, smaller steps on sanctions uh, to, you know, to allow uh, the South to kind of engage the North uh, on some joint projects, some tourism. Uh, I'm wondering if you could give us a sense from, from Seoul mm -hmm. about how, um, you know, Moon Jae-in hopes to maybe convince Trump um, to sort of move in that direction, um, offer something in the form of sanctions release. Is that still a viable plan? How might Moon uh, try to make that case? Yes, I, um, I think it's actually South Korean government, if not, even though I'm not a part of the <laughs> government, but the feeling that the, the, the President Moon has is like a, there was some kind of twist. If without it, it could have been made. Mm -hmm. uh, because actually one hour after Trump walked away, uh, from Hanoi and on the plane calling President Moon eight times, uh, eight times, you know, please talk to the Chairman Kim and find out what he thinks. So he felt that some kind of regret or, you know, uh, things like that. So he, I think his, his thinking framework is if he makes two meet again, that this time will you know, work. Mm -hmm. That's the pretty much basic uh, thing. But as, as uh, Ambassador Joe said, it's because it's all the cars are revealed, so many things are on the menu, so probably better if we have third. But I have a little different opinion because now it's more like a pride fight. And if go to the small deal, that means North Korea is, is winning and U.S. is losing. If we go back to go to the big deal, that means North Korea is losing. So I think we need to add up a little bit more. Maybe Yongbyon plus Alpha, or you know, sanctionally uh, relief plus some kind of uh, regime uh, security issues. But anyways, I think this is like a North Koreans like a process of building up, and. I want to have you know uh, pay attention to, and I want you to pay attention to this. You know, uh, after no deal at Hanoi, three arguments, especially in Washington, 
among hardliners are getting louder. Number one is sanction is working. So this is the time, it is time for push more, not to stop. The second one is finally we finally found out that the genuineness of denuclearization of Chairman Kim. So that means he has no intention to denuclearize. Third, actually limitation of top-down approach. And we have to go back to you know, um, working level negotiation. And actually North Korea is well aware of this. And actually they're building up in these three uh, area. Number one for sanction issues. They said, especially April you know, speech by Kim Jong-un said, we are ready to tighten our belt and survive. Regarding to genuineness, actually he tried to appeal his genuineness toward Russia and China and international organization. I think number three is most important part. That's why he tried to re-confirm uh, you know, that top-down approach is still usable. Because he believes some people, people who support this working level negotiation is actually don't want this top-down approach is successful. Mm -hmm. So, and same thing happened to uh, President Trump and President Moon when they met in Washington April 11th. They reconfirmed that this top-down approach, of course, it has to be somehow negotiated in the working level negotiation, but has to be led by this top-down approach. Right, can, can, I just, sure. can I just say, the, 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 this idea that there's a zero-sum trade-off between a small deal and a big deal. I, I mean, I think some may frame it that way, but I think in reality, like at this next, I don't know why they can't do both, mm -hmm. right? I mean, a small deal is only a problem if it's not in the context of an agreement between the leaders on the big deal, right? Big deal being everything for everything, all the weapons for all the sanctions. And so if they can get agreement on the big deal, at least in principle and in writing, that opens space for taking the first step. Small deal, you know, young gun plus alpha for some sanction suspension. I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of room there. So, so I think there's a deal that could be made, right? Um, but, uh, but the working level is important because somebody's got to set up the leaders so that they can say in advance, that looks good to me, right? So that when they meet and... That's why working, I mean, we're not just saying this because we're all working level stiffs. So it's, it's just for, it's practically is, is the only way, you know, it's yeah. not just in, in any field, in business, in any place, you know, the, the leaders need that working level of people to set up the successful meeting. I think that would be an interesting dynamic of how uh, the White House would cast some sort of double deal, I guess you might call it, or mm. uh, maybe that's the wrong way to term it, but um, because I think that you're, I think there is the truth that the media um, reporters would be sort of judging this against what ha the, uh, the, the, the complete collapse in Hanoi um, with the idea that any kind of move to some smaller deal would be some concession by the U.S. And even if there was some bigger deal on the table or, or agreed upon in the outer, you know, longer frame, uh, unless that was very sp specific, it would be hard to know or have confidence that they've reached that. But Dr. Lee, I wondered if you, if you had a thought well, on that. Uh, well, looking back the, around the time of Hanoi summit, uh, I would say a general mood of South Korean government was quite festive or too optimistic about the outcome. But actually, it turned out that uh, no deal agreement. So uh, given that, uh, uh, actually, uh, 
I, uh, there was many reports that uh, President Moon Jae-in was preparing a book, big announcement on the March 1st. Uh, you know that March 1st is a big day in Korea. Uh, it's a quite an important national day. And according to the report, uh, the, the announcement contained a very ambitious plan to engage North Korea, both politically and economically. But uh, in a sense that uh, the, the Nodel at Hanoi uh, functioned as a kind of a <laughs> obstacle to announce that ambitious plan. So nevertheless, uh, after Hanoi uh, summit, as far as I understand, the Korean government is still optimistic, still preparing a lot of a big ambitious plan to engage North Korea. And uh, uh, perhaps that engagement plan includes, uh, for example, gasoline industrial complex, resuming Gumgangsan tourism uh, project, and also uh, many inter-Korean joint economic ventures. Uh, eventually, this, uh, how much uh, South Korean government can implement this will depend on uh, the actual progress of denuclearization. And uh, about the uh, Hanoi summit, uh, I, uh, for the future of the uh, 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 talk between US and DPRK, I would say we need to focus on two takes that I think important. Uh, one is the, uh, at least Hanoi summit very clearly uh, indicated that what's the uh, bottom line that both sides demands. Uh, uh, the uh, US uh, point of the FFVD uh, uh, was the uh, one thing. And North Korea also clearly meant that uh, lifting sanctions, uh, which is quite important for their economic survival. And second point is that uh, some kind of a review uh, is necessary for top-down uh, approach uh, that uh, both uh, US and DPRK has adopted so far. In a sense, top-down approach may be a good uh, uh, way to open the channel for dialogue, but at the same time, it seems to me uh, it turned out in Hanoi that lack of a vertical coordination within each government was quite an important factor that, that we must think about. So if there's, if there's a third summit between U.S. and DPRK would be possible, then perhaps working level preparation and uh, working level agenda setting, etc., it should be much more important than previous uh, uh, summits. So if, if uh, in, in particular, uh, you know that uh, those Koreans have a very weird political system. Okay? And the only person that can decide the policy and the only person that can answer authoritatively about the nuclear issue in North Korea is Kim Jong-un. And even though there were many working level contacts between uh, uh, US and North Korean uh, 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 officials before the summit, the only, the final uh, decision uh, about uh, how to denuclearize and also how to uh, offer some kind of a give and take, it was dependent on Kim Jong-un himself. So given that uh, perhaps in order for the summit to be successful, I would say top-down plus uh, uh, a kind of working level preparation must be an important factor uh, to think about. Joy, I wanted to come to you with a little step back, a little broader for uh, the G20, um, not to weigh in on, on all the things the president's gonna, gonna do there, uh, but he's got a pretty quick trip to the G20 uh, as well. It's, uh, I think, two nights. It originally was gonna be one, uh, but I think the president was gonna arrive and just hit the ground running. Uh, I think he's going to now come a night earlier and sort of get maybe some, you know, get adjusted to the uh, time difference and so on. But I, I, it struck me, and this is a difficult uh, uh, sort of question, but, um, you know, having covered the Obama administration, I know there was uh, significant sort of work done to try to 
have uh, the United States sort of broker a little bit better working relationship between Seoul and Tokyo. And there was a trilateral meeting, at least one, I believe, maybe two, um, between the three leaders, uh, I think in The Hague, if I remember at the time, relationships were really, really struggling. Um, I think at the G20, the uh, president's gonna have a trilateral, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with um, Japan and India um, as part of the uh, sort of uh, broader alliance uh, or broader framework of the administration's Asia policy. Um, has there been any thought to sort of doing some sort of trilateral with um, uh, Tokyo and Seoul, uh, not necessarily on this trip, but in general, if not, you know, can you talk at all about you know, how important it is to have the three allies on the same page? Because we do get a lot of sense that there's still you know, uh, quite a bit of friction between uh, Japan and uh, South Korea generally, but certainly you see the two leaders uh, you know, working their relationships with President Trump to sort of get across different messages. Yeah, so these are extremely important alliances for the United States. And, um, and, having, and getting these alliances right, and having the ROK and Japan uh, cooperate with each other is, uh, is essential. We're not going to be successful in negotiating with North Korea unless those alliances are strong, and, and unless, frankly, that relationship between Japan and, and the ROC are, are, is good. Um, Unfortunately, at this particular moment, it's not good um, between those two countries. And um, I think the U.S. government would love to be involved and bring them together. Um, but I think, but recognize, we recognize that the risk of doing anything, frankly, uh, can be interpreted by one side as favoring the other. Um, there's no question that we, uh, every chance we get, we encourage both sides to work out these historical issues, these sensitivities, um, the law case, the uh, current um, um, cases, uh, forced labor cases um, that they're now um, disputing. And um, if anyone has a suggestion on <laughs> where the US government could be useful and helpful, I think we're really open because um, yeah, these are important relationships and if there's something we could do to help Japan and uh, Korea uh, resolve them, uh, we would. I wondered also on G20 if the, pre the president made a quite a bit of effort in 2017, especially on a trip to Asia, to uh, talk about North Korea and the importance. I wondered if, if the president in Osaka has any, if you have a sense, and, and I know your, your role in that is limited, but if you have any sense of how he might, if you know, how much the Korea uh, issue will be part of his discussions with other world leaders and you know how that might come up. He's meeting of course with Xi Jinping um, That mostly seems to be focused on trade trying to nail down that trade deal But certainly given what we've seen just in recent days with uh, Xi Jinping's visit You know will will and how will the president try to sort of get that message across in Osaka if, if you have any sense of that Yeah, so um, I uh, I don't make predictions <laughs> <You're right>. um, <laughs> And so I, I won't make predictions, but I think you could assume that it it would be natural it would be, um, that uh, was considering uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Pyongyang, that there will be great curiosity about what messages were there um, and what um, uh, any ideas that Xi Jinping has on engagement with North Korea. Um, this is a priority for the United States, uh, North Korea's denuclearization. So I would not be surprised if that's on the agenda for, for almost all of his bilateral meetings. Victor, on, on Xi Jinping's visit, I think uh, I may have talked to you for this story. I did a piece about a few, maybe a month or two ago about whether 
uh, Trump's escalating trade fight with Beijing could bleed over into his efforts uh, to keep China on board with the sanctions uh, and pressure on Pyongyang on the nuclear question. And I, at the time, I sort of analysts told me at that time they didn't see evidence that the two issues were necessarily affecting one another. Uh, I'm wondering now what you read into the Xi's visit um, to Pyongyang. Um, you know, was he sending Trump any signals? Did, and do you have any sense of whether that connects to the trade issue um, and puts more pressure on Trump to resolve that at all? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that, um, I certainly don't think that Xi went to Pyongyang to try to help broker a deal for the United States. Uh, the, I just don't see the Chinese doing that for the United States. Um, you, you know, for me, that the significance of that visit uh, is what it means more broadly for China's long-term strategy on the Korean Peninsula vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Um, today, um, China has twice as many railroads connecting northern Korea to China than the South has with the North. Uh, they have for over a decade extracted all the mineral resources out of North Korea. Um, and it's only a matter of time before they start financing One Belt, One Road energy infrastructure and highway projects in North Korea. So China is slowly growing its influence in, in North Korea. And so when Xi goes to Pyongyang and says, look, let me t I know you want to reform. Let me tell you about the latest face recognition technology that we use for internal security. That is something I think the North Koreans would be very interested in, in terms of reform and development. So, so you know, that I think is where, the, 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 where that, what that trip means and where that relationship is going, aside from the U.S.-China um, uh, um, US trade friction. And so, you know, I think, I mean, it is, it is one of the big questions about engagement with North Korea. And we were talking about this at dinner last night that, you know, you know from particularly from the South Korean viewpoint, the argument to Americans about engagement has always been about you know, North Korea is insecure, it's weak, it wants attention, incentives work better than pressure. But if you want to make the argument to American hawks about engagement with North Korea, it should really be in the context of if we don't engage, China's going to take over the northern part of the peninsula. And then unification, if it ever happens, is going to be much more complicated. And that's from a South Korean US perspective. And I think you know, for the Washington swamp, you know, that is a more persuasive argument for engagement than to say, you know, let's buy the horse for the fourth time, right? And so. Let me jump to our uh, panelists from Korea quickly. I want to do a little bit of lightning round. Are we okay to have questions from the audience? Sure. Yeah, yeah. we'll do that in one second. Just quick yeah. lightning round here. I think uh, we're going to 145. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. Um, for our two panelists from Korea, I was interested in this. Um, I was trying to think where, in, you know, maybe we should do a story at some point, we're maybe not there yet, of which countries are looking and hoping for a Donald Trump re-election uh, in 2020. <laughs> and one of the ones that came to mind and that people sort of signaled to me was uh, South Korea, uh, because the president has done this engagement with the North. And I'm wondering if you can give us a sense politically how the Moon government, how invested they are in campaign 2020. Is they, are they hoping do you think for a Donald Trump <laughs> uh, re-election? And I say they, that the Blue House, and then I don't know if the, the broader 
uh, broader South Korean you know, public, how they view it. Um, and, then, and then is there you know, a, a thought about uh, the democratic field? Uh, we know a lot about Pre uh, Vice President Biden's uh, foreign policy. Um, but is there a contingency plan in case, uh, in case it heads that way? Well, there, uh, if Trump's re-elected, it will be controversial. If he failed, it's also controversial from Korean perspective. <laughs> well, uh, in a sense, uh, some people, uh, the opinion in Korea, uh, as far as I understand, is quite mixed. Uh, some people say that oh, Trump, even though he's a very viewed president, He's uh, uh, doing a very good job in handling voice of like uh, China and North Korea right. with the tweets and everything he can do. But at the same time, uh, he is kind of uncertain himself okay? because of his policy leadership style and also uh, because of that, uh, there were a lot of uncertainty uh, arising from uh, that, that overcomes the uh, typical uh, policy making processes. So in one sense, it may be good if he be elected. Uh, with more confidence, he can do some uh, creative uh, job in handling and those kind of issues. And uh, if he uh, fails, what happens? Perhaps a Democrat uh, will uh, take a more uh, vigorous and uh, more complicated approach to handling North Korea. So in, in a sense, uh, there are both good and side uh, whether or not Trump really will be elected or not. Mm -hmm. So. Well, of course, it is a purely personal uh, judgment. But uh, if you ask many Koreans, perhaps you will also share some mixed opinions. <laughs> Dr. Kim, I don't know if you had any thoughts. Oh, okay. And actually, as a liberal, as a progressive, actually, I don't agree with him in any sense, except his peace process and negotiation process with Kim Jong-un. So having said that, actually, if he does some irreversible denuclearization somehow, partially. That's why early harvest is important. Then it doesn't matter whether he's elected or not. But if he cannot do anything, then you know, uh, uh, democratic uh, you know, government will you know, reverse everything, so we'll be more in trouble. So, so this is where I feel like, and I said this recently at Kathy's forum, I feel like we are now in the post-engagement versus containment phase of the debate on North Korea because We've just heard one of the most prominent progressives <laughs> in South Korea saying that Donald Trump would be good for the North Korea problem. But my question then is, is Donald Trump good for the alliance? And unfortunately, I would say he's not good for the alliance. Right? And so you know, I think there are, we are now in a completely new area. <laughs> of conversation that don't fit with any of sort of the standard established guidelines of where people fall on certain issues. Joe, I don't know if you feel, if you feel that way, so. You want him to be elected? <laughs> <laughs> Are we voting, everybody? Yeah. This is, this is a very tough question because, I mean, for American voters, even if you want to look at foreign policy, you have to look at totality, Iran, Venezuela, trade, immigration, Mexico, Iran, uh, and, and so all those things. And, 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 and you have to weigh them. I, I, there, to me, there's no question. You look at both Europe, uh, US, and Korea, there is a kind of a, I would say, you know, uh, conventional wisdom no longer holds. 
you know. And in that sense, we're looking at really shaken up political spectrum. And what you know, uh, my friend Professor Kim said, you know, it, it does make sense if you're Korean. Uh, that is, that's the only thing that matters. Uh, but for Americans, there's going to be many other issues that are there. So it's a yeah, complicated, complicated yes. question. <laughs> yeah, great point. You know? um, that sounds like I have one more wild card for Joe, but let's, uh, maybe we can open up to questions. I don't want to lose much time. Um, should I go in-house here? <laughs> so, yeah. Is that we have a mic? We have the mic. Just following on Victor's comments, is the panel is on alliance. What are the biggest risks to the alliance? We know alliance is strong, but what is the risk? Is there potential daylight on North Korea? Is that Trump's America first orientation and protectionist policy? What should we be worried about? And since Joey cannot answer that question, um, perhaps a comment on where we are on burden sharing or our transfer. Do you want to go first, Joey? Joy. Uh, so, um, <laughs> on you asked specifically. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I can't ask uh, ask your broader question. But on burden sharing, um, the administration is reviewing its policy on burden sharing worldwide. Um, I think the president has made it very clear that he wants our allies and partners to pay a fair share, uh, a greater share of the cost of uh, protecting themselves. And so, um, Korea comes under that. Uh, once this review is over, we're hoping it's soon, uh, we will uh, begin again negotiating the next, next uh, special measures agreement with Korea. And um, we will be asking for more of uh, Korea's contribution to the station of forces in Korea. Risk to the Alliance, one of our guests from Seoul, either Dr. Kim or Dr. Lee, have any? As you said, I think it's, you know, uh, alliance in crisis is like a frequent menu for, you know, conservative to criticize President Moon. But as you said, it's strong ever. And if he has a no choice, you know, exclusive choice between the alliance and and the North Korea, he probably may surely pick the alliance. So biggest the risk is Trump again. You know, Trump actually his rhetorics actually people. People, in a way, because we are in, in the, like a 2017, you know, friends, allies, we are in trouble. But Trump is kind of was taking advantage of our situation to sell weapons and things like that. But for me, in the future, I think it's it's a good chance for as a progressive, good chance for, because Koreans, South Koreans think this alliance is almost like a religion or a myth. I think, in a way, in a, in a way, is a good way to secularize this myth. So because from if progressive is making alliance trouble, then it's going to be a problem. But on the other side, if Trump kind of uh, you know uh, secularize this alliance, it it is good chance for South Korea is more realistically and pragmatically. Well, uh, I uh, I'll say that uh, still uh, fundamental between uh, alliance to alliance relationship, uh, like a government to government or people to people, is quite solid and good. But just below the surface, we have many uncertainties. That's obvious, right? Burden sharing is one issue. And if peace regime uh, discussion is a full sway, uh, perhaps the future, but what's the role of USFK? And what about the future fate of the United Nations command in Korean Peninsula? That is one thing. And also, what's happening, look at what's happening these days. 
uh, Chinese communication company Huawei is a big issue for Korean companies as well. We, just a few years ago, we have suffered from further deployment of, uh, and China that is subtly revenged for Korean economy. So uh, in Huawei case, perhaps impact may be much more significant for Korean economy and Korean economy or Korean uh, telecommunication companies like LG, U plus, something like that. And also think about what about the Korea's position in Indo-Pacific strategy. U.S. and Japan is enhancing that discussion, but largely Korea is look like a blind spot in that discussion. So those issues, one of each of those issues, may be quite a significant challenge uh, for Korean-U.S. Uh, relations in the coming days. Victor, I think you have. Yeah, so I mean, w what I would like to see in terms of the, in answer to Sue's question in terms of the alliance is really, um, um, sure, sure, North Korea is the number one issue, but really a focus on all the other things that the United States and Korea are doing. So, like when I think back to when you know when we were doing this in the Bush administration, of course we had we had a progressive government. We had to talk a lot about North Korea, but at the same time, you know, the South Koreans were sending troops to Iraq. They had a PRT in Afghanistan. We had a Green Growth Alliance. Um, we did visa waiver, we had the work English study program, you know, we had a whole variety of things. And also, I would direct you to a speech that Mark Lippert gave when he was ambassador, where he talked about all the future areas of cooperation. It was a rich menu. You know, everything, you know, everything from development assistance to work in outer space together. So, you know, this is the proactive agenda of the Alliance that I would like to see more of in the public narrative of the Alliance. Right now, it's all about North Korea, or it's about 232, or it's about burden sharing, and then coming is OPCON transition, right? So these are all very difficult issues, but there's a very positive, proactive agenda to the alliance. It was either our morning speaker, Rich Nye, or Richard Armitage, or Joseph Nye that said, you know, alliances are like tending a garden. If you, if you don't take care of it, weeds are gonna grow. And so we have to continue to tend to the alliance. And, you know, I'm sure that Joy and her team are doing a lot of these things. I just would like to see it much more in the public narrative of the alliance, especially, you know, since the president is going um, to see Moon. So. If I could just add, yeah. um, so uh, thank you, Dr. Cha. I think maybe we aren't doing a good enough job of actually talking about publicizing mm. some of the things we are doing. Mm. So in fact, under uh, the, uh, the um, new southern policy of South Korea and under the um, Indo-Pacific strategy, we have projects that we are working on, okay. um, including a water project in the Laura Mekong Initiative, Women's Economic Empowerment in Laos, um, uh, cybersecurity throughout ASEAN. So it, yeah. again, I think we just haven't done enough um, talking about the things that we are doing and that we are planning to work on together. Yeah. I would love to see President Trump talking about U.S.-South Korea cooperation on women's empowerment. <laughs> but for some reason, I don't see that happening. So. Got a couple more questions. How about back here? Back there. Yeah, thank you. Mike Billington with the Executive Intelligence Review and the Schiller Institute. Uh, Ambassador Yuen referenced the, uh, on the Trump question, the, the uh, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, so forth. But I think, really, that all of those should be subsumed under the question of whether Trump is going to be successful in his fundamental commitment, which he repeats over and over again, that he wants to establish close relations with Russia and China. And this next week is absolutely crucial in that, obviously, because of these two extremely important personal uh, 
operations in which he has a chance to get out from under the, the anti-China, anti-Russia <coughs> hysteria from the British, from the Congress, from the press, from his own cabinet. Uh, and I, I would like you to comment on that, the question of that personal diplomacy, which we're going to see with Xi and, and with Putin next week, this week. Is that, is that for Ambassador Young? For me? <laughs> yes <laughs> and no. <laughs> no. Uh, my own assessment is that in any of these areas, he has yet to hit a home run. You know, uh, maybe the exception of Mexico. You know, uh, I think there he got some result, and 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 then Mexicans were coming round to it. The problem, the, the area that we're all intimately familiar with, with North Korea, is that tensions are down, but the underlying reason for tensions, which is nuclear weapons in North Korea, have not been addressed. Rather, they have been stockpiling more and more. So you can see that, I mean, if you were to, you know, you know blow the final whistle now, obviously in North Korea, it's been a failure. But final whistle has not been blown yet. I think I saw a hand up way back there. Oh. A woman back there, maybe? Hi, I'm Soyeon Kim uh, with RFA and Radio Free Asia. Um, so recently, Sweden uh, uh, began the uh, special envoy for North Korea uh, expressed the biggest frustration and a challenge when he had a negotiation with his uh, uh, counterparts. He said that uh, because, I think Davey mentioned it briefly about, um, because their um, counterparts don't have any authorization to make a decision. So he couldn't really um, move forward with um, the negotiation. And then we don't really uh, see that that nature, um, natural structure won't change any soon. So what's the, um, so my question is though, even we all know that the importance of having that uh, working level negotiation talks, but what's the, what can be um, practical best outcome from those uh, working level negotiations if they don't really uh, have any power to make a decision? Thank you. Dr. Kim or Richard, uh, Victor? I think that's a common question from, from uh, people who really you know, worry about the limitation of the top-down approach. And before I answer that directly, I want to you know, uh, raise a, a, you know, the, the arguments that raised by two panelists. One is you know, by Victor. He talked about we shouldn't have this dichotomous, you know, dichotomy of zero-sum relation between the small and and the big, and actually, and another one is actually uh, uh, working level negotiation you talk about, because right now, even if we think it's realistically, yes, we need to kind of uh, bend a little bit so to accommodate uh, uh, you know, interim agreement, but the official position right now is Trump is holding is big deal, and it's a Bolton's proposal, at least for now. And it is for them, is actually is bringing this time clock to pre-Singapore era, because they think it's, Singapore is the turning point. So new kind of relation of trust. So before 
somehow U.S. you know make them sure about the change, the position, change of the positions. So they think it's this talking about the working level solutions and talking about this big deal. They're not gonna come to the table. So the biggest you know purpose of our you know alliance actually to bring him to the come to the table. So right now it's. Talking about this working level is now going to help at this moment. I'm sure, I totally agree with it, and this is important. And directly to your question, actually, Ryong and Chesson is, is much better pe person and people, and they know the they know the failure now, experience period failure now. I think they will come in different position if they can be sure about the trust. Well, let me add one point. Uh, uh, in past two uh, summits uh, between uh, uh, in, in two summits between Trump and uh, Kim Jong Un, what's missing is the deliverables. So in order to understand better understand what should be done through working level preparation, we must think about what's the eventual deliverable in the third summit. Meaning that there should be some fixed uh, basket, gift basket, for example. Uh, ideally, uh, North Korea should come up with a, a little bit uh, a progressed uh, uh, declaration about, about their uh, 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 nuclear uh, 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 capabilities. And instead, uh, Trump may prepare some sort of a gift to Kim Jong-un, like a partially uh, lifting sanctions and so on. One more question, I think, right here. Thank you. Uh, Steve Lee, Korea Defense Veterans Association. So uh, when I was on active duty, I worked in Panmunjom as the Secretary of the United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission. One of my jobs was to actually communicate with my North Korean counterpart there in uh, the Joint Security Area. And we were always looking for creative ways to actually try to engage, okay, always trying to de-escalate situations. So we know that right now um, the engagement is at the top between the two. So if that sort of bogs down, can you see other ways of trying to move things forward? Any creative ways, any thoughts that you might have uh, about that? Um, so, you know, the, the fourth track coming out of Singapore, as you know well, was the POW MIA remains returns. Uh, that is essentially a way to directly engage the KPA. Um, you know, so that may be certainly something, and, and President Trump likes that, and so that may be something. Um, but I think, you know, at this point, it's not about creativity, about new tracks. It is, you know, as we get closer to a third summit, I think everybody agrees there's going to be a third summit. What this really comes down to is the internal battles in both, in both, in both governments, right? And within the North Korean government, it's going to be about what do we do beyond Yongbyon? Right. That's what it's going to be about. And you know, clearly they know the United States wants the uranium program. So what are we going to do beyond Yongbyon? And on the U.S. side, it's going to be a knockdown, drag out interagency. Into, we've been there. It is ugly. You're going to, all of us, some of us have been, it's ugly as anything, um, about how much sanction suspension, you know, sanctions lifting versus sanction suspension. How, you know, how many sanctions should we suspend and what's the snapback, right? That's, in the end, the brass tacks, that's what it's going to come down to, to facilitate you know, a successful third meeting. I mean, the one thing good about a third meeting is that both leaders 
know that it can't fail. Both leaders this time really are going to direct their lower people that we have to get an agreement, you know, we want an agreement this time. So, um, so maybe that's perhaps the best way to connect the leadership with the working level. Right, it strikes me, uh, I was gonna say, it, if you have a third summit, I can't imagine it not going into it with them thinking they're gonna get some sort of deal. You see uh, John Bolton a little bit on the ropes, um, both on Iran uh, and other <laughs> issues. Um, we'll see how, uh, but he certainly played a strong role, it appears, in Hanoi, so maybe to some surprise. So I'll just final, just quick, I think, maybe this, I sort of answered it myself, but do we, do we think of the panelists that we're gonna see some sort of deal before the end of the year, heading into Donald Trump's re-election year, some sort of deal, uh, I won't say exactly what it is, obviously, but some sort of deal struck in some sort of big third summit. Do we think, does everybody think that's what happened, or do we think it's not so simple? I think, so, the, so the, the Donald Trump who, as president, would probably want a deal, the Donald Trump campaigning in 2020 may prefer not to have a deal because it becomes a big target for Biden and for everybody else. So, and I don't know which Donald Trump is going to show I've up. I've heard the same so. thing about China trade. But yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, we're going to have a deal, whether it's big deal, small deal, or medium deal, we don't know, but there yeah. will be a deal. Yes, the moment of truth will come, but the, prob the, the question is, can we you know, make the best out of it? Dr. Lee, I'll skip the show. <laughs> 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 I can say I hope uh, there will be a <laughs> <laughs> I hope uh, agreement should be big. Yeah. Implementation may be small. So that's Dr. the right step. And Joy, if you have any final thoughts, since I did skip you there, I don't know if you have any final thoughts for it's us. Okay. I, I would say I, I hope that there's a <laughs> Well, good. a lot of optimism, hopefully, that we have a good, some sort of good deal. But thank you all. Um, thank you to the panelists. And again, uh, thank you to the career chair for, uh, for a wonderful 10 years. Thank, thank you. you all. Thanks. That was fun. Great. Yeah, sure. Hope it, hope it worked out okay. Please join us yes, in yes, the reception yes, hall for some coffee yes, and refreshments. You, we'll reconvene at 2 p.m. Thank you. Thanks yes. for protecting me. Well, I'm a little bit nervous because. It. Oh, no, of course, of course. Our next session, session two, recasting and forecasting the peace building process on the Korean Peninsula, will begin soon. So if you could please begin taking your seats. We would also like to announce our next winners for today's door prize. Our our coffee mugs for our 10-year anniversary, Diane Seeger, Monet Stokes, and Sing Ha Lee. You can collect your door prize on the first floor at the next break. With that, I would like to turn the session over to Ambassador Cho, the former chancellor of the Korea National Diplomatic Academy and former ambassador to Myanmar and Malaysia. Thank you, thank you very much. Hello, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, uh, all of you, to this uh, uh, second uh, session of uh, today's uh, uh, conference. The agenda item we have here is, uh, as you can see, the recasting and the forecasting uh, of the peace building uh, process on the Korean Peninsula. Actually, uh, the session one was supposed to cover the alliance and the denuclearization <laughs> issue. And uh, this second session, we were supposed to discuss the peace uh, building process. However, I think under the very, very um, active leadership of uh, uh, David. David Nakamura, huh? David Nakamura, yeah, White House correspondents, I think the first session uh, panel has uh, covered almost all of the issues related <laughs> with the denuclearization and uh, current ones, particularly 
the President Xi Jinping's visit to Pyongyang, and uh, also President uh, Trump's upcoming uh, visit to Osaka, and the following uh, visit to Seoul, and all the issues uh, which might ensue from that uh, visit. So for me, it's a task how we can uh, differentiate the this session in session two from the session one. So uh, my idea is uh, that I'll ask our uh, four prominent uh, uh, experts here to put uh, the uh, peace uh, building process in, a, in the context more uh, rather than on a specific issue by issue, but in a more broader context uh, in the sense that uh, to see uh, what happened, particularly after the Hanoi summit and uh, where we are now and uh, in view with these uh, upcoming events, I mean last weeks, uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Pyongyang and uh, President Trump's tour to uh, Osaka and uh, Seoul and uh, what we can expect from uh, this uh, event. So with this in mind, I think we let's try to see uh, what happened and where we are and what we can expect uh, for the uh, upcoming several weeks uh, uh, time. So we have, uh, for this panel discussion, we have uh, four prominent uh, uh, experts. We have, um, uh, just to my left side, we have Dr. Baek Hak-sol. Uh, he is now currently leading the Sejong uh, Research Institute. And he is uh, one of the most prominent uh, uh, North Korean specialist in Korea. And he studied in uh, Seoul, of course, but he has uh, got his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, next to him, we have uh, uh, Sumi Terry, Dr. Sumi Terry. You know uh, her. She's been here with the CSIS since 2017. And before that, she was uh, uh, with uh, the Central Intelligence Agency as a Korea analyst. And also, she has been working at the NSC, reporting quite extensively on Korea and Japan and uh, oceanic affairs and so on. So real uh, specialist on North Korea. And we have um, a very special uh, panelist here. Ramon, Dr. Ramon Pacheco, Professor Ramon Pacheco. He is a Korea uh, chair at the uh, Institute of European Studies at the uh, Free University of uh, Belgium. Actually, Korea Foundation has uh, three uh, Korea chairs. Uh, now, this one is the first one, CSIS uh, Korea chair. It was uh, set up in 2009, as you know. And the uh, Korea Foundation is going to have another one in the United States in uh, Los Angeles in Rand Corporation very soon. 
And uh, outside the United States, they have one in Belgium. That is uh, uh, IESVUB, that's what Dr. Ramon Pacheco uh, has. And also he is teaching uh, at uh, King's College London. And uh, so today we can expect that on our discussion of uh, denuclearization issue and the peace building issue on the Korean Peninsula, some inputs from the European Union perspective. And we have lastly Dr. Um, Park Joo-young. Uh, again, I mean, very special um, input uh, for this uh, discussion. She is now currently a senior researcher at the Asan Policy Institute in Seoul. Uh, very interestingly, she uh, is a nuclear scientist. She studied nuclear engineering. Uh, and uh, has got a PhD at the University of um, uh, Michigan. Currently, she is handling the policy issues related with the nuclear uh, affairs, but uh, her major is uh, nuclear engineering. So she is a real expert on this nuclear issue. So that's our uh, panel. And then, um, we will proceed in this way. Then first, uh, I think uh, we will we will give to each uh, expert about uh, five or uh, ten minutes to make a uh, presentation uh, on their own. As you said, I mean, uh, what happened, particularly after Hanoi summit, and where we are now, and where we uh, are expected to be going. Uh, focusing on these uh, questions about uh, five or ten minutes, uh, not more than uh, ten minutes. After that, then there will be some uh, exchange questions and uh, answer session. So we can start. Thank you. Okay, uh, Dr. Peck, if you, you go ahead, please. Thank you, Ambassador John. Uh, actually, it's a privilege to be here uh, with you to share with you some of my uh, thoughts on uh, what we are going to, what, are, what we are trying to achieve in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, peace settlement and denuclearization, two of the most difficult conundrums of our time. And uh, we, we have very uh, frustrating periods since Hanoi, uh, not uh, having any resumption of you know, working level negotiation between the United States and North Korea. but. Uh, we have very exciting week ahead, uh, fully uh, you know, uh, expecting uh, some, some good thing uh, could happen. Uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, but uh, before I go, uh, before I proceed, let me, let me share with you what we, we are really trying to achieve uh, at this critical juncture of history in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I would ask you to uh, recall what happened in uh, 2017, particularly in the second half of that year, and, uh, and also in the first days of uh, 2018. Uh, there was a uh, you know, heightened threat of war, uh, not, not a simple threat of war, but an egregiously heightened threat of war, nuclear war, in a sense, and, and uh, both leaders of the United States and North Korea, of course, you know, Kim Jong-un initiated first, saying that 
I have a nuclear button uh, on my desk, and Donald Trump responding by saying, uh, I have a bigger one and powerful, powerful one, more powerful, powerful than it works. At that moment, uh, particularly those people living in the Korean Peninsula, uh, you know, were uh, totally frustrated, and, uh, and those remarks by the, by the leaders uh, who just treated nuclear weapons just like a, uh, you know, playthings children you know, play with. Uh, and uh, there formed an instantaneously and uh, dramatically a consensus among people that you know, this never again, enough is enough. So uh, we tried to uh, uh, deal with the fundamental question how to uh, make it uh, uh, how to make it not happen again. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, we were almost resolved to uh, deal with the root cause of the problem. Okay, how to dismantle the Cold War structure, long overdue Cold War structure, uh, seven, seven decades long, more than seven decades long Cold War structure on the Korean Peninsula. Otherwise, it would repeat again and again. And uh, so uh, that's what we are trying to achieve. But how? Of course, uh, through uh, peace settlement denuclearization. Uh, and uh, we, I, I want to make a few points. Uh, number one, we have to have a third uh, summit, uh, United States and North Korea. But the third summit should absolutely be a success. Otherwise, uh, there will be uh, you know, you know, serious you know, setbacks and also backlashes, and uh, which we don't want to see again. And uh, another point I'm trying to make is that uh, we have to we have to be very careful about policies and strategies, uh, basically based on uh, human psychological calculation and structure. Uh, we had. Uh, you know, uh, in, in those days of uh, you know, the Soviet-United uh, States rivalry in the Cold War era, we had uh, strategy like MAD, MAD, Mutual Assured uh, Destruction, but uh, it, it was based on human uh, psychology and we were not uh, totally assured of our safety, so uh, we, we tried to have a physical protection of ourselves against the threats from coming uh, the other side. So we had, uh, you know, Star Wars, SDI, and now uh, missile defense. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, for instance, questions like, what if North Korea decides to uh, lift uh, its self-imposed uh, moratorium on nuclear and ballistic missile testing? When we think of, you know, a maximum pressure on North Korea, you know, as the uh, most effective you know, policy tool, even to the point where we, uh, you know, unconsciously regard it as, uh, as the objective uh, of our policy, regard like it or not. And then North Korea's, what if North Korea's, you know, decides to uh, lift the sanctions, lift the moratorium, as I mentioned. And, and another point I'm trying to share with you is that South Korea should not be sidelined too much. Uh, uh, as, as we all know, South Korea played a you know, brilliant role in mediating and uh, facilitating the process 
uh, of the uh, direct talks between the United States and North Korea. And South Korea is uh, structurally sidelined to a significant extent. And the uh, you know, United States is our ally, and North Korea is our, uh, you know, our uh, Korean uh, you know, brethren. Uh, and, and, uh, and so uh, you know, both sides should not, should not uh, you know, uh, sideline us, South Korea, which uh, initiated this whole process of peace after the uh, totally unforgivable you know, uh, heightened threat of war on the Korean Peninsula, as I mentioned, uh, in uh, 2017. Uh, and, uh, and another concern I have uh, in the United States uh, uh, White House is that to what extent President Trump overrides the, uh, the opposition from the hotliner uh, advisors or to what extent he is over, overridden by hotliner uh, of advisors. We heard about snapback uh, you know, idea uh, proposed by Donald Trump in Hanoi, as exposed by uh, North Korean side, Chesson He. Uh, and we have uh, Iranian uh, you know, case, the most recently of a few days ago. Uh, and the uh, you know, United States decided to uh, use military option to, to Iran, but uh, uh, President uh, canceled it at the last moment. So what's happening here? And that's one of the uh, great concerns. Let me, <coughs> I don't know how many minutes I'm... I'm uh, you have four more minutes. <laughs> four more minutes. Yeah. Uh, in order to uh, uh, make you know, third uh, summit, U.S. Uh, DPRK summit, a total success, absolute success. Uh, I think uh, we have to deal with the uh, outstanding mismatches we experienced in Hanoi. Uh, one of the uh, most you know, difficult uh, problems we deal with North Korea is sanction, uh, understanding the concept of sanction and uh, understanding of effectiveness of sanction as a policy tool. Uh, North Korea regards, uh, consistently has regarded sanction not as a give and take an item uh, in negotiation. They regard it as a precondition for beginning a real give and take deal. Because sanction is regarded as, uh, as something that, uh, that reveals true intention of the United States toward North Korea. Uh, sanction uh, is regarded by North Koreans as a symbol of trust symbol of uh, you know, accepting uh, uh, so-called a peaceful coexistence of the United States with North Korea. Uh, if you know, that is not uh, accommodated by the United States, and then what's the use of uh, continuing uh, negotiation? That's uh, something North Koreans always have said. And uh, so uh, uh, that's something. Uh, the one important you know, thing we can do is to bring sanction uh, into a, the category of give and take deal, make it uh, in a give and take item, not a precondition. What, what's the, uh, what can be done about this? I think uh, inevitably there, to be, uh, there has to be uh, sanction relief as an expression of America's goodwill, you know, uh, a lack of uh, you know, 
hostility toward North Korea, accepting a peaceful coexistence with North Korea. We don't know exactly to what extent we have to relieve sanction, uh, to suspend sanction, to exempt sanction. But uh, without that, I think North Korea, you know, would be giving us a very hard time. Another point uh, with regard to uh, resuming the third uh, summit uh, has to be uh, also has to do with the, what happened in Hanoi. We we do not have full account of exactly what happened over there. Uh, we are uh, getting, you know, piece, pieces and uh, bits of pieces of information from the United States and from North Korea. But uh, even I, I don't think South Korean government has as full an you know, account of what exactly happened. What, why and what, uh, why and how did, did the summit stall that way? Uh, because, because of what process, what, uh, what path, you know, uh, they did, uh, they had in, in, in Hanoi, for instance. And uh, finally, uh, let, me, let me share with you uh, the photo of Kim Jong-un reading uh, uh, President Trump's letter sent to him. Uh, many uh, you know, people, particularly those reporters uh, in the press, wanted to read as much as possible out of the photo, uh, which appeared on the front page of Rodong Shimun. Uh, uh, on 23rd, and they zoomed in on the, the you know back backside of the letter uh, and identifying how many uh, and the paragraphs are there, how many why you know last two uh, parts are, are thick lettered, uh, and just before you know thick letter uh, signature of the president, and so but uh, I paid more attention to the. Uh, to the uh, you know, working conference table Kim Jong-un was sitting at. Uh, there were at least, you know, there was indication there were six, at least six people sitting together. Maybe the photo was taken of before, you know, the discussion uh, among, among the six, or after the six, after the discussion session among the, among the six. Uh, and so uh, we, we all know that, uh, you know, there's a, uh, criticism and uh, reports uh, from the U.S. government officials involved in the Hanoi negotiation, and also uh, reporters from various you know, press that uh, uh, North Korean negotiators, Kim Young-chul and Kim Hyuk-chul, just dealt with all other issues except for denuclearization, which they uh, did not try to get into uh, because it belongs to the you know, authority of the final decision of the Supreme Leader himself. But uh, North Korea has its own, as long as I know, and it was exposed publicly that uh, he has, Kim Jong-un has his own uh, version of National Security Council. And the photo we, we saw uh, you know, definitely uh, uh, is an indication of, of an inner circle discussion of how to interpret Donald Trump's letter and uh, how to respond to that. What, let me close by saying that uh, definitely 40 minister people must have been there, but Ho and the Chesani. Uh, I don't think it was an official you know, NS, NS, NSC meeting. It was innocent committee how to deal with the United States. So North Korea, United States experts uh, must have been assembled together. Thank mm. you very much. Thank you, Dr. Beck. Basically, uh, all he says that uh, we are still not very, uh, we have not had a full account of what happened in Hanoi. 
And uh, uh, as far as the concept or meaning of sanction is concerned, that there is still mismatch between two sides. And the South Korean uh, government's role is much more uh, needed. Okay, after that, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Ramon Pacheco. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll keep my initial remarks uh, brief. Uh, thanks, first of all, uh, for the invitation to, to join the, the, the celebration of the 10th anniversary. When, when we launched the, the chair in Europe, we looked at the website of the CSIS Korea chair and we said, okay, this is something we cannot do. <laughs> you are doing a lot of really good work. Mm -hmm. And we decided to focus more on the European uh, component. And this is how I want to frame uh, my remarks. Uh, in, in my case, I'm more of a, a Korea specialist. I would consider myself, but we're working now a little bit more on Europe, Korea. And, and, and what can Europe, if anything, provide to the, to the Korean processes that we're, that we're looking at, right? Because I think we have two processes, one of them denuclearization and the second one reconciliation process between both, both Koreas. And, and President Moon, uh, you might know, he was in, in, in Europe, in the Nordics, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he was talking about uh, European models of reconciliation. And I stress the S in reconciliation, right? Because uh, what we see is that in, in the Balkans, uh, East and West Europe, Northern Ireland, uh, Germany, of course, all, all these different processes, uh, they took years, when not decades, uh, to bring a satisfactory conclusion. And in the Balkans, we're still discussing how could reach reconciliation after the wars that go back to the early 1990s. And I think that, if anything, uh, the Korean Peninsula process will be even uh, longer in terms of reconciliation. I'm not even talking about reunification, which is a completely different uh, issue. So going back to your question about Hanoi, uh, the fact that Hanoi produced no agreement, even though I think it surprised many of us, uh, I don't think is an obstacle that cannot be uh, surmounted at some point. Uh, we have seen process of reconciliation in many different places in which at some point it looked like they were going to break down. Uh, you had leaders on one of the two sides that didn't want to continue the process. And what actually made the processes continue is I think partly what we are seeing now, the commitment from, from the leaders of the three main parties, right? North Korea, South Korea, and the US. But something that is missing, I think that's the second point uh, that is uh, quite relevant for the discussion that we're having today, that any peace in the Korean Peninsula, as was mentioned in previous panels, uh, we will need a working level process. Uh, we'll need the people to people process. And that's something that we see missing uh, currently. I think in the inter-Korean inter level, uh, we see this is starting actually with military uh, confidence building measures, they talk about uh, more people to people exchanges, uh, but it is true that between the US and, and, and North Korea, this is uh, currently missing. And I think that's the, the, the greatest risk that we have at this point, uh, not the commitment uh, from the leaders, but the fact that we don't have this, this process, you know, if at some point one of the two parties uh, decides to, de to defect, North Korea and the US, and they decide not to continue the process, this will have to be rebuilt, uh, maybe with a new leader uh, in, in, in the US. Uh, the point being that uh, this process will need the commitment of successive leaders, and to ensure that this commitment remains in place, I think it will be very important to have the working level process uh, among those that don't need to be elected, for example, in, in, in the US or South Korea. Uh, there is a second component, which is the more material component. Uh, if North Korea is going to ever denuclearize, and I sit on the camp who thinks that uh, why would Kim Jong-un denuclearize? I don't think he will. But at least he can start taking steps towards denuclearization or meaningful steps towards denuclearization. 
and we can have maybe some sanctions relief. What is going to be key is the material component, the, the economic cooperation uh, uh, process. And when it comes to economic cooperation, I think the ideas that you see coming out from different places, uh, including the current South Korean government, are actually good. The regionalization of the process. So this talk, for example, about an East Asian railroad community, uh, which, which the president, President Moon, actually has linked to the uh, European coal and steel community set up in the 1950s. This is how we reconciled in Europe, really. Uh, it was good to have all these working level processes. It was good to have the leaders committed to the process. But once we had economic cooperation, then it became uh, very difficult for any leader to have any sort of war, violent relationship with any other country, right? And I think that what we are trying to achieve uh, with North Korea, which is to engage North Korea in different economic flows, uh, and East Asia, Northeast Asia, as we all know, is one of the most economically dynamic regions in the world, uh, is, is, is the right approach. And what we have seen when the U.S. Uh, has come to, uh, to Europe, for example, Special Representative Bigun, and met with European leaders, this is something he has stressed, right? What can Europe contribute to the economic rebuilding uh, or the economic development of, of, of North Korea in terms of money, but also in terms of, uh, of expertise? And I think this is uh, key if we're going to see uh, a successful process of uh, moving towards denuclearization, uh, reconciliation between both Koreas, and, and North Korea becoming a, a so-called more uh, normal country. And, and the last point that I wanted to, to make for my uh, opening remarks is that what we are looking at in, in, in the Korean Peninsula, I think we cannot agree, is a lack of trust, right? There is a lack of trust between both Koreas, between the US uh, and, and North Korea. I think this is quite clear, and this is back uh, uh, for, for decades, but the international community itself has a lack of trust in, in, in North Korea. And, and I think this is key as well, because one thing that you see when you try to discuss these type of issues in, in, in Europe, uh, peace building in the Korean Peninsula, denuclearization of North Korea, immediately from policymakers, uh, what you get is, but how will you trust uh, Kim Jong-un? North Korea has already signed uh, similar arguments in the past. Um, uh, he obviously wants to keep the, the, nuclear, uh, the nuclear weapons for, for, his own, for, 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 for his own security. How can you trust him? And I think what we have to see here, going back to your question about, uh, uh, about Hanoi and the process uh, moving forward, is that we have to build trust on the North Korean regime. And I think on this particular issue, North Korea obviously has to change its behavior. But more important, I think we'll have to start with the US and South Korea trying to understand uh, uh, better North Korea. And I think this is something that might be, uh, again, missing so far from the process because it's a top-down approach. Uh, and this trust-building process would involve what I have mentioned uh, uh, before, but also might involve, once we have uh, a third summit, uh, subsequent meetings uh, between the different leaders, trying to understand uh, each other a little, bit, uh, a little bit better. And this is something that I think in Europe we successfully have been doing. Uh, over the decades, but I think this is something that is missing uh, in the case of the Korean Peninsula and between the US and North Korea. And I will leave it there for my opening remarks. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, with the um, experience of the European uh, Union, uh, it seems that uh, maybe we are coming back the um, the the comparison of uh, the two different uh, approaches of one uh, 
peace through denuclearization. So putting emphasis on denuclearization and then through which we can have the peace uh, approach. And another one is uh, uh, denuclearization through peace, potentially. Uh, so uh, promoting peace or some creating some conditions for peace, then we can uh, expect that, that at some point we can realize, we can achieve the denuclearization. I think on this uh, particular subject, we can come back uh, later. After that, uh, we have um, Dr. Park. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, I'd like to talk about the denuclearization process, uh, which is critical to the peace-building process on Korean Peninsula. Uh, we had previously two nuclear crises in Korean Peninsula. The first one was in 1992, and we had a agreed framework between United States and DPRK after that. And by, the, by this agreed framework, the North Korean nuclear program had frozen for several years. But second nuclear crisis had come because of the, the uranium enrichment facility disclosure. And at the time, we organized the six-party talks, but this kind of effort ended without very much significant progress about toward the denuclearization. And after 15 years, in, 19, in 2017, DPRK conducted its last nuclear test confirming its nuclear weaponization uh, capability. And the international community once again first to sit on the negotiation table with the DPRK. And uh, we realized that the current situation is totally different from the first or second nuclear crisis because North Korea is almost complete their nuclear programs. And it's it's not possible just to simply reverse this situation. Uh, but from the first uh, US DPRK summit, we had a little hope that it might be solved uh, without any detailed plan or procedure. But, it put, but after the second summit between the United States and DPRK, uh, we find out that it's not going to be work and we need more detailed and planned procedure for the, the, the DPRK's denuclearization. Uh, from the two summit, we realized that there is a huge discrepancy between the concept of denuclearization between the United States and DPRK. For the United States, the, the concept of denuclearization is just a denuclearization itself as it is, but for the, the DPRK, it seems that it's just a freezing of, um, of detectable activities or dismantling of symbolic facilities. And this is totally different from the, the denuclearization what we know. So because of this huge discrepancy, uh, we cannot solve everything at once. We should draw the bottom line and uh, we should prepare the every calculation. So we have to uh, think about that, what is allowed for the United States. Uh, last month, John Bolton mentioned that the present 
is determined that neither Iran or North Korea will get deliverable nuclear weapons. So if it's the bottom line for the United States, we are a little bit worried about uh, the term deliverable because currently North Korea doesn't have deliverable nuclear weapons toward uh, the United States. But for the South Korea, it's, the North Korea already has deliverable nuclear weapons. So the, in the negotiation process, consideration about how much South Korea can tolerate about the North Korean's nuclear weapon uh, should be very, should be considered very importantly. And another the thing we should think about is the what North Korea really wants for the negotiation. And what, what, what is the most urgent thing for the North Korea? The urgent thing is clearly the economic needs for the North Korea. And the, but the important thing for the North Korea is keeping their nuclear capability. So we have to think about that can economic needs overwhelm the importance of having nuclear capability for DPRK? How much trade-off uh, are they ready for the ne negotiation? And the other thing is the, the international community's acceptance. We have our European colleague here, and uh, we have to think about that the international community is ready for accept another Israel or another Iran, or maybe are we ready for having another three or four DPRKs in the near future? Mm -hmm. If international community is not ready for accepting these kind of conditions, then we have to force DPRK to agree to the denuclearization concept. And uh, if DPRK agree to accept the denuclearization concept, then DPRK should commit its intention toward denuclearization. It should confirm that there is no further weapons or missile test, and it should confirm that there would be no production of fissile materials. Then commitment for the inspection, dismantlement of weapons, removal of materials, and destruction of facilities should follow even with a plan, even without the immediate implementation. However, this is going to be very a long process and it's going to be very painful because the DPRK's nuclear program has been lasted for several decades and they have, they, their capability is very diversified. They have uranium uh, production facilities and uranium itself, for the uranium alone, they have uranium mining facilities, uranium refining facilities, uranium enrichment facilities, and have lots of uh, uranium-related facilities like uh, uranium uh, hexafluoride production facilities, and they have already have some capability of producing the centrifuges. For the plutonium production, they have reactors to produce the spent fuels. Also, they have a reprocessing plants, and they have some the chemical production plants for the reprocessing. And for the hydrogen capability, they have a lithium production or tritium production facilities inside their land. 
So we have to uh, identify all those uh, facilities and have to verify if it's really uh, dismantled or if it's really disabled for the denuclearization. So this kind of process would be very long. And uh, we have a case of South Africa. And for South Africa, it took about two years. And they only have the four years nuclear development program. And they had only primitive uh, uranium nuclear weapons. But for the North Korea, uh, they capabil their capability is very diversified, and we have to uh, make inspection over hundreds of facilities, and we have to conduct maybe thousands of interviews and documentation reviews. And because the North Korea is closed to society, I wonder if they w they can be allowed they can allow their people get interviews by by the ex expert from the outside world. So we have to cautiously plan or design the denuclearization process, and it's going to be a very difficult thing. And, uh, but even, even it's going to be a very long and painful process, we have to move on to the denuclearization of North Korea. And the key goal of negotiation is reducing, reducing tension on Korean Peninsula and uh, we have to ensure elimination of nuclear program of DPRK. And the approaches of simple maintaining dialogue or negotiation momentum should be avoided because it's going to be a, a, a long process. And uh, the, we have to always empathize the, the importance of denuclearization, and we have to put empathize the, about the US uh, ROK alliance and have the, we, that we have the same concept and common interest between the US and the uh, Republic of Korea. And I will stop here. Okay, yes, thank you very much. Pointing out that uh, there are still uh, significant um, uh, discrepancies or divergences in uh, the uh, understanding of, uh, of the basic concepts like uh, even I mean, denuclearization and the pointing also uh, that uh, denuclearization process would be a very difficult, long and uh, quite complicated one. Okay, so now uh, Dr. Thank you. Cemetery. Yes. Good afternoon. My mic on? Yeah. Um, I counted I'm the ninth person out of two panels talking about North Korea. So I know this is a deadly hour for our Korean guests. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully you'll get through the jet lag and I'll just try to summarize quickly and answer your question on where we think we are and where we are headed. Mm. Um, I think no matter what your view is on US-North Korea policy, since now it's been an anniversary since the Singapore summit, it's been a little bit over a year, we have to agree that it was a disappointing outcome, right? Um, this was not a, what we thought, even with the best of hopes. Um, and we don't even have the basic agreed upon definition on denuclearization right now, as of today, um, after, a year of, uh, after a year has passed. That said, um, the first panel brought this point up. Um, we are seeing some positive momentum. We are have seen some signal, positive signal, so that's a good thing. 
uh, we have at least first communication between the two leaders um, since Hanoi. Um, beautiful letter, excellent letter. Um, and we, not only that, I think not only they have exchanged letters, we have also, you know, Kim Jong-un has sent his sister to Panmunjom to send this condolence letter, meeting with the South Korean officials. Uh, 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 and so all of this is a positive sign. And I think uh, Kim did tell Xi Jinping last week that um, he will be more patient, or he will be at least patient until the end of the year. So with these overtures to Washington, um, Kim is, at the moment obviously is pursuing um, a diplomatic strategy that's based a combination of charm and coercion in order to breed a new life into the stalled negotiations. Um, North Korea's testing of the short-range missiles since Hanoi are not uh, to scrap the talks, but obviously it's to uh, it's designed to uh, sort of project strength at home and designed to uh, pressure Washington to return to negotiations, to build up leverage um, and reset the terms of the negotiations. So Kim Kim was careful to launch short-range missiles, not intermediate or uh, intercontinental missiles. Um, obviously, the message, though, that it was a defined message that Kim was trying to send is to, to Trump that North Korea can escalate, so U.S. should, it's enough, it's enough, back down, come back to negotiation um, in terms uh, that's favorable to North Korea. Now, so contrary to what Chesney said in that, you know, she said this very ominously in this very hastily arranged um, uh, press meeting, briefing, a midnight press briefing, after, the Trump, after Trump took off in Hanoi, um, contrary to that, what she said, Kim has not lost the will to continue the dialogue uh, with the United States. Kim does want to separate President Trump from his advisors. That's clear. Um, he does want to appeal directly to President Trump. Um, but he nonetheless wants to deal with President Trump and still, so the path to engagement and dialogue is open and that's a positive thing. And obviously we've seen President Trump on his part is also interested in negotiations. This is why he played down the short range missiles, directly contradicting his own national security advisor and Prime Minister Abe in, in Tokyo. So, and he wanted to, uh, he said he's open to third summit and so on. And so that, all of it, I think is positive. Um, so what we have at the moment are, uh, we have both North Korean missile, at least the intercontinental nuclear missile testing, we, are at, uh, we, are, we have a freeze on that. At the si same time, we also have a freeze on US-South Korea joint military exercises. They remain frozen. Secondly, we do have exchange of these letters. Um, they are both speaking warmly of each other. Um, and we have not returned to the days of the dark days of 2017 with the fire and fury and, and all of it. Um, so where are we with that? Um, so I do think given all of this, I do agree with the first panel that interim deal is possible. I think that that's certainly possible. Um, in Hanoi, the United States was reportedly ready to grant a peace declaration to mm -hmm. North Korea, uh, open liaison offices with North Korea. So all of that remain in play. Um, those concessions were ready to be given, but not given only because I do think it was Kim's overreach. You said, why well, did it break? I think it was Kim's overreach of demanding so much of sanctions to be lifted just for Yongbyon. But 
all of this still could be forthcoming in the future. So before the end of the year, obviously, two scenarios are possible. First scenario is what we all talked about today, the interim deal scenario. Third, uh, Trump-Kim summit. With, but I still think it's going to be a small deal. I don't think it's going to be a big deal, to be, to be honest. Uh, but it is still small interim deal since both leaders want to make this happen. And that second scenario is the modeling through scenario without a return to dialogue. And I think we have to be careful to just all say, you know, I think when David Nakamura said, hey, do you guys all think we're going to have a summit and everybody raised their hand? But I think we should be careful because we are dealing with an unpredictable US president. And he, one thing he likes to do is to prove everybody wrong. So when all the pundits said that this, he was going to you know, give into a bad deal in Hanoi, he proved us wrong. So if we actually want him to have a third summit, maybe we should say maybe, maybe we don't predict that. <laughs> um, but so I do think it is possible also, though, that, um, you know, that, that we could model through some, for some time. I don't think Kim Jong-un will return. To, I don't think he will break the self-moratorium that he has on intercontinental ballistic missile tests and nuke tests, because he did say that he's going to give Trump until end of year. He did tell President Xi that um, he will be patient until the end of the year. Um, and so if the first scenario unfolds, and uh, I do think that Kim could offer something on the negotiating table that's Young Bin Plus, that you know, we, we, we don't know exactly what that is, but it has to be more than Yangbyon because it didn't work in Hanoi. Um, maybe plus another suspected nuclear facility. Um, I don't think, unfortunately, I do not think Kim will necessarily agree to a timeline or, or a roadmap to advance the Singapore Declaration. I think that's a little bit expecting too much. I certainly do not think that he's going to give a declaration of nuclear and missile arsenal or its stock, stockpile. Um, but he could offer Young Gun Plus because from Kim's perspective, his calculation could be that it is still worth it to him because he still gets to keep his nuclear weapons and, and, and missiles. Um, and this is obviously has to be for some sanctions relief. Um, but again, um, I, I am concerned about not necessarily getting there uh, because, uh, it, particularly because if the Trump administration does not budge on sanctions. And right now, we do have a bipartisan legislation uh, that was just introduced recently that on the new sanctions, they would cut off from the US banking system uh, any person or entity that is doing business with North Korea. And the Senate is expected to approve that. This is an amendment to the Senate's um, annual defense bill. So my point is, um, there is a, a sort of also momentum towards not lifting sanctions. So again, I think we have to be careful. I think these two scenarios are possible, um, and we, it all depends on President Trump and how much he wants to um, uh, have that third summit. Um, so if we don't have the first possibility, option one, I do think that Kim will have to resort to then plan B, uh, which is a graduated escalation, and I do think we have to prepare for that. And in that sec second scenario, what that means is Kim will have to gradually escalate, not to violate the moratorium that he has on intercontinental ballistic missiles or nuclear tests, but he can certainly escalate. He can do, for example, a medium-range medium missile test over Japan, let's say in August, to continue to pressure the Trump administration if we don't move on, on the sanctions front. Um, so. And then what we'll have is sort of a crescendo of provocative actions and statements closer to the end of the year. 
um, again, which scenario will prevail will depend on President Trump and, and the two leaders. I had one last comment on this as a peace building process on the Korean Peninsula. Um, I think the main difficulty will be a, a timeline and sequencing of that. The challenge is that the necessary condition for peace is identified by U.S. Rock Alliance in the United States. It's right now unacceptable to North Korea, right? Uh, whether they are verifiable denuclearization, reducing forward deployed North Korean forces along the DMZ, it's not, this is not what the North Koreans want. Um, and the, but the reverse is true as well. What the North Koreans demand for conditions for peace building uh, are not necessarily what we're ready to give. We've already suspended the U.S. ROC joint military exercises, but we are, um, we're not ready to give relaxation of sanctions. We're not ready to cut U.S. forces down and so on. So I think that's going to be the difficulty uh, in, ahead for us. Yeah, thank you, Sue. Um, yeah, we've heard uh, four panels uh, just uh, summarizing uh, their perspectives on what has happened and where we are and what we can expect from here. Uh, of all, it seems that uh, what we've seen, what we experienced in Hanoi, uh, the result was quite, um, quite very, very unexpected. So we are seeing that uh, it takes almost uh, four months to see that all the dust has settled down. And uh, just now, in the, from the middle of June, we see some diplomatic activities are resuming uh, some exchange of uh, letters, beautiful, uh, beautiful letters between uh, Trump and Chairman uh, Kim and uh, Xi Jinping visit to uh, Pyongyang. And next week we will see President Trump in Osaka and uh, in, in uh, uh, Seoul. And uh, again, having seen that what has been uh, talked about and discussed or happened in Hanoi, we see that there is a lot more work still we need to uh, do. Uh, and uh, to move forward from here, uh, as far as uh, I can see, that what, what is most uh, uh, urgently needed or importantly needed is uh, uh, to narrow the gap between uh, the approaches between uh, two sides so far. The major emphasis on the North Korean side is that uh, this should be done through a uh, phased approach. That's what they suggested in Hanoi, and that has been adamantly refused by the United States. And uh, that's what they've been asking the United States to reconsider by the end of this uh, year. So on the North Korean side, the phased approach is the still uh, maintained basic position and uh, on the international side or in the United States, then uh, whether we can just uh, keep uh, rejecting this uh, any phase-by-phase -phase element of the approach uh, and insisting all, all or nothing approach. So on this point, I think, uh, uh, of course, I mean, there should be discussions between two governments, but it, it, uh, same time on this kind of uh, uh, level, I think we can, we, we may need some further uh, ex exploration. Uh, how do you, on this uh, panel, I mean, your ideas on, on this uh, issue? Some of the differences between two uh, approaches, one uh, 
phase one. Oh, uh, in in the morning in the morning session, uh, the first session actually, uh, Victor Cha uh, alluded to uh, the the need to uh, you know understand small deal versus big deal, mm. uh, particular small in the context of big deal, mm. and uh, I think. You know, what happened in, in, in Singapore was a big deal. Uh, comprehensive package, in other words, bring uh, all you know, key uh, issues and concerns from both sides and to decide on how to, uh, you know, give, how to give and take you know, those uh, all, big, all important items you know, in the context of big deal. I, I think a small deal is a process in the context of big deal. And uh, so uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I, uh, I agree to uh, Victor uh, in that regard. And what has to be done to uh, to narrow the gap, uh, mm. which was revealed uh, uh, in in Hanoi, I think again, as I uh, as I said uh, in my uh, presentation, there is a need to uh, have a full account of what happened. Not, mm -hmm. not simply among us, but uh, between the two negotiators, two sides as well. Uh, after uh, you know, uh, a series of uh, summits in, in Osaka, Hanoi, in the G20 summit, and also President Trump's visit to South Korea, plus you know, uh, summit talks what already happened between China and North Korea, and the exchange of letters between the leaders. I think there is ample, really, you know, period of hope, hopes for resuming, uh, you know, dialogues between the United States, negotiations between the United States and North Korea. We don't have to talk about, you know, uh, exactly when uh, third summit will be taking place. What is important is to begin, you know, working level negotiations first, and that's which is a natural process of reaching uh, mm -hmm. up to, uh, you know, summit talks. And so uh, uh, I hope you know both sides, both negotiators, you know, sit together and have a full account, candidly, and uh, in a problem-solving fashion, about what has to be done to uh, to understand and to to narrow the gap. Uh, you know what happened you know, at the sun. Okay. Thank you very much. You so you, you I mean that that's all sounds great i just i just don't know if that's realistic i would also just i wouldn't necessarily think, uh, characterize singapore as a big deal i think that was aspirational statement i mean it was good that they met i think we can now see by the fact that we did not make any progress since singapore that it was not really a big deal that it was able to i mean it was not efficient it was too vague uh, too aspirational um, I agree that I think working level is absolutely important. I just don't think, I'm not sure if that's what Trump and Kim are at. This is why, you know, look at what Kim Jong-un has been doing. Even after the short range missiles, uh, he, they're verbally attacking Pompeo and Bolton, but want to directly deal with President Trump. Um, so while we can say, well, this is what we want to see, I'm just not sure if that's necessarily possible. But I do think that this is, what is possible is that because in Hanoi, it was just what North Koreans were asking was just too much right? for two, for majority of sanctions to be lifted for Yongbyon. So we now know what what there is an interim deal to be had. Only thing that Kim has to decide is can he give up Yongbyon plus something more. So at least President 
Trump can say, okay, I got more out of Hanoi, and mm -hmm. here I'm not going to give, you know, let you lift the five UNSC resolution sanctions, but mm -hmm. we can get some sanctions lifted for some. So I think there is a some medium space that you could meet, but that takes the will of whether Kim and Trump wants to do that or not. And I, so I'm not disagreeing. I, I absolutely think the working level process is extremely important. We saw in Hanoi what happens when there is not an agreement that has been worked out. I'm just not sure if there's a realistic thing to expect. Uh, anyway, there is a kind of uh, phased approach. Yeah. Also, yes, right? yes it is. But you don't have to necessarily call it that if that bothers people. Just one minute. One minute, please. Yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about small deal or big deal? Yeah or the need to have uh, you know, working level negotiation. Uh, you know, we, you know, working level negotiation is taking place in the context of you know, having you know, uh, summit talks at the highest level, not just like you know, working level uh, negotiation going on without having any, uh, any you know, uh, uh, know the goal, you know, not, uh, not uh, you know, reaching uh, anywhere. Uh, so uh, th th right, this right. is different. You right. know, so we have to begin working level negotiation immediately in order to have, you know, the summit level, uh, so that you know they can decide the most important, you know, uh, okay. breakthroughs. The fuck? Any comment? Well, I I don't think much difference between the big deal and uh, the phase phase to phase uh, approach, because if we can agree with the concept of denuclearization, then it doesn't matter for me. And uh, for the, the first thing we have to do is to make a trust building that Kim Jong-un should know that this kind of negotiation process or this kind of commitment can last last through the administration to administration. If the US government is changed, then it should be lasted. And if the South Korean government will change, then even the, the change of government doesn't harm the, the, this kind of negotiation. And we have to uh, give that, that kind of trust to Kim Jong-un. And also North Korean side should uh, give some trust that they will not uh, reverse the negotiation as before. Yeah, yeah. Just you want to say just on that, uh, um, Again, I just think that's, but how do we do that? How do we make him think that it's not gonna get reversed when you have President Trump going, all, mm. going back on Iran? <laughs> They've already experienced this after agree framework from changeover from Clinton to Bush. They continually blame the you know, Bush administration coming in, the initial hard line for things falling apart. So they've already experienced that. So they have very, very skeptical. They also see what's going on with Iran. So I absolutely take that point. I just don't know how do we then make him think we have a different administration and it'll be all good when they have history that shows them, tells them otherwise. Yeah, I think it's now time to turn to uh, open the floor and have some question and answers. Uh, you, you, you will make one, one minute comment. I, I will only add two, two, two points. Uh, one of them, I, I agree with the point about the, mm. the need for a step-by-step -step process. I also think that it is up to North Korea to offer more because North Korea needs the agreement. Mm. The US can live without an agreement with North Korea nothing is really going to happen in terms of domestic politics for any president if they don't reach an agreement with North Korea. But 
Kim Jong-un, he has told his people, you are going to have a brighter future. There's going to be an economic process in which uh, your lives are going to be improving, right? And uh, going back to Hem uh, Jong-un, um, et cetera, et cetera. So he actually, at some point, uh, yes, been a dictator, but he will have to deliver on the economic front. He's not the first authoritarian leader that has to deliver on, on, on this front. So I think uh, that at some point he will have to offer more than what he offered uh, in Hanoi and take less than what he was asking for, for in Hanoi. And, and, and if he's not willing to make that trade-off, I think it would be very difficult to, to reach an agreement. And the second point, I, I think Sumi raised a very important question, which is how, how can you make any North Korean government, Kim Jong-un, uh, trust that the agreement will survive the current administration? And, and something that I find very interesting is that, um, coming from the, from the European, angle that when you meet with, uh, with North Koreans in different officials, I'm not talking about refugees, North Korean officials in different settings, uh, from, from their perspective, the role of the international community, the European Union, the United Nations, etc., etc., would be to guarantee that the agreement might be able to continue, right? So the example of Iran is very good because the, the only reason why the Iranian nuclear deal has not completely crumbled is because Europeans are trying to make it survive. I'm not saying it's going to survive, but at least the agreement is still in place, right? And the thinking in Brussels is maybe a next administration that comes to power, who knows, maybe next year, they will want to revive this agreement or use it as a stepping stone for another agreement. And North Koreans have actually raised that issue with, with Europe. Why don't you not sign the main deal, because that would be the US and, and, and North Korea and the two Koreas, maybe China as well, but you can provide some sort of guarantee that the agreement will survive uh, over a period of time. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry, just to, before uh, opening the floor, just, uh, just one question from moderator to panel, particularly to Sue and um, uh, Raul. Seems that there is a kind of a perception uh, in, uh, in maybe even in Europe or in the United States that uh, Korean current Korean government is uh, lukewarm in denuclearization issue, mainly focusing more on the development of inter-Korean relations rather than denuclearization. That is not uh, actually true. I mean, nuclear weapon in North Korea is uh, more threatening to South Korea than to any other countries. So how do you think this, uh, why this kind of phenomenon, perception gap uh, occurs and uh, what would be the remedy uh, to correct that? How do you think? Well, I don't necessarily think everybody thinks that. Um, it's it just that uh, maybe the, it's not that, you know, if, if some people think that, I don't want to speak for uh, folks who, who might think that, but it's, a, it's, it's because, not because South Korea does not care about denuclearization, but because the premium is so much on inter-Korea mm -hmm. relationship, regardless of North Korea's behavior. Oh. Um, but I think that's something that, you know, that can be, it is a misunderstanding. I do think, you know, we had this conversation yesterday. I do think it's a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. I do think it does, South Korea does care very much about denuclearization. So that's something that just needs to be discussed further. I think it's just, if that misperception is there, it's only because we're only looking at the actions of the government and it just seems so uh, heavily leaning towards trying to improve Korea. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily, you know, I think it's more of a misunderstanding yeah. of people know that. I, th I think in Europe it's, it's similar. There are people who understand that denuclearization is key for, for South Korea as well, and, and, and they will make the point. Uh, it is true that if you go to maybe more hawkish countries, uh, France very, very clearly, uh, they think that 
South Korea doesn't care about the denuclearization. That, that's the thinking, right? Uh, and, 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 and I think this is because they focus so heavily on, on, on the nuclear issue that if you don't share the French position in this case, for example, which is about denuclearization, non-proliferation, etc., etc., you are not, uh, you, you don't care about nuclear weapons. But, but if you go, for example, to Central and Eastern Europe, countries that used to be communist, they say, well, we understand what Korea is doing. We understand that for South Korea, denuclearization is important. But we also went through the process of trying to open up the economy little by little and the process of reconciliation that Korea is trying to achieve. So we understand why this is important for South Korea. Not that denuclearization is not for South Korea, but we understand why South Korea would also emphasize uh, uh, this point. I would add one thing, though, that in the case of Europe, if the US and North Korea reach an agreement, Europe is not going to oppose the agreement and say, no, 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 we, you have to denuclearize before we remove sanctions, right? So, so from that perspective, if there is an agreement, North Korea moves towards denuclearization, I don't see any country in Europe uh, slowing down the process or, or, or anything, like, uh, anything like that. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have just uh, 10 minutes now, uh, uh, so we will open this uh, floor to, to anybody who has any questions or comments, please. Hi, I'm Bridget Coggins from University of California and uh, adjunct at, at Korea Chair here at CSIS. Uh, I thought that, that Sue raised an interesting point, which was that, that Kim should come with Young Beyond Plus. Uh, but also, Professor Park, you raised an interesting point, which is that a lot of these technical issues um, or, or things that have been suggested in the past, like full declaration, are technically absurd things that won't be offered. So have you thought at all about, I mean, what, what advice would you give to, to the North Korean team about what they could offer? What's, what is Young Beyond Plus? You, well, you will go. Well, I, I, it could be another suspected facility. Right, for example, I think it's unrealistic to expect them to give up on any part of the nuclear warheads or the missiles, which is what we would want. And I also think it would be very difficult for them, for us to get a full declaration, which is what we also want. Um, but if they, it's sort of, you know, knowing President Trump, like it, it, because it fell apart uh, in Hanoi and we said Yongbin was not enough, it's just sort of the, it's just moving it a little bit forward to show that there is, you know, there's a momentum towards we like we're we're interested in making a deal, right? So that's why I said I, I, perhaps I mean that's I, that's a possibility. And again, from Kim's calculation, that's okay because he gets to keep his nuclear weapons and missiles. Yeah. Yes, you might make comment. Yeah. And of course, Young Young Plus is a good idea, but with crisp funding measures from the United States, uh, otherwise it would not happen. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I want to make comments on uh, the perception you pointed out that South Korea oh, yes. might have a lukewarm position on denuclearization uh, itself. Actually, uh, so as, as Sumi pointed out, there is a huge you know, misunderstanding if that's the case. Uh, because we Koreans are thinking of you know, national unification as the ultimate goal. So uh, uh, nuclear North Korea is, is a huge obstacle uh, you know, in the way to uh, eventual national unification uh, at the later stage. So uh, 
uh, regardless of whether officially enunciated or not, uh, there is a consensus among Korean people and including Korean government definitely that uh, you know, uh, there should not be uh, a nuclear weapons, you know, nuclear weapon you know, equipped North Korea uh, in the process of national, national unification. Uh, one thing uh, as, as a Korean uh, to point out regarding the uh, misperception and perception you pointed out, you know, there's a tendency among U.S. governments, particularly among the uh, you know, conservative governments, uh, that, oh, you know, you, you South Korea try to improve relations with North Korea while, you know, North Korea is an enemy of, of us. We are allies. So uh, why don't you listen to, to us, you know, uh, you know, allies, you know, advice, not trying to do something toward our enemy. That kind of very simple dichotomy persists, in my opinion. And but uh, remember that uh, you know North Korea is our our Korean nation, and we have to a lot of things to do in the first place. You know, reduce the tension as uh, as as was demonstrated in uh, in military agreement recently, and uh, we have other things to do to reconcile between the two uh, you know, parts of nation and. Uh, so uh, politically and economically and, uh, and let alone humanitarian area. So uh, I hope Americans will be uh, paying more, more attention to the fact that we are Koreans. We have to uh, you know, think of, uh, you know, South Koreans are think, thinking of national unification eventually. Uh, oh. And so, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's it. Okay, any more questions, comments? Yeah. Far behind me, I can see one. And the next one over there, at the end of the corner. Hi, yes. Um, I'm Yunhee Kim, a recent graduate of Johns Hopkins University, SAIS. And my question is related to sanctions and humanitarian assistance, which has never been uh, mentioned throughout this uh, session. And Dr. Sumiteri, she just mentioned uh, the possibility of sanctions relief, but at the same time, uh, she also said the new legislation that sounds more strengthened targeted uh, financial sanctions against North Korea. But also at the same time, people talk, keep talking about the dire humanitarian situation in North Korea. And currently, the U.S. sanction does not allow even humanitarian logistics access to North Korea. So what's your thought on the possibility of some sanctions exceptions of for humanitarian needs uh, in North Korea or general thought in the context of this peace movement and let's hear the last question and after that I think the panel will respond Doug Samuelson Infologics Incorporated little consulting company here in the suburbs what do you think about the prospects of persuading North Korea to renounce any plans to export nuclear technology or materials to other parties? Export? Export? Yeah, export nuclear, nuclear, nuclear technology. Oh, okay. So, um, yes, good, and yes, good. Um, I think, I think um, in fact, the US government, I think we're ready to give some sanctions relief around humanitarian aid, but that's something that I think um, that was even considered also for Hanoi. That I think it were, that's not a far-fetched scenario. We understand that there is a humanitarian need. Um, United Nations World Food Program just came out with more urgent report. And I think there's willingness for that. We just need to kind of make progress on that. And of course, 
what you were just saying about, you know, one of the greatest concerns with North Korea is proliferation and nuclear proliferation. North Korea is a serial proliferator. We know they proliferated everything under the sun except nuclear weapons. And for, for, for us to get them to say that would be an important step. But I mean, again, it's part of the whole negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. Rob, you want to respond on the humanitarian assistance issue? Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, just last week uh, we issued a report, uh, the chair together with a uh, uh, key part from, from Harvard Medical School, precisely on your point, right? What can be done under the current sanctions regime? We don't even need to remove sanctions, right? Yeah. And the idea is, for example, uh, to implement a comprehensive uh, medical program to uh, North Korea has a very dire situation when it comes to emergency care, right? So uh, we have seen reports of tourists, for example, dying from accidents, which in any other country in, in Northeast Asia, this wouldn't happen because the medical system is much more developed and emergency care is much more developed. So for example, in North Korea, even ambulances are uh, pretty uh, inexistent, right? And, and this is something that can be done under the sanctions regime, so I fully, I fully agree with you. And I agree with what Sumi said. I mean, this is something the US government has shown interest in this. They are not opposed to this. Uh, and, and if I bring the European perspective, this is an area in which you see pretty much every single European Union member state saying, yeah, this is something we should do. There's also a political component. This way we show to the North Korean people, not to the regime, to the North Korean people that we don't have anything against them. We don't agree with your government, but we are happy to help you out as much as necessary through humanitarian assistance. Okay, thank you very much. Time is up and uh, I hope that uh, this session uh, has, has been some uh, help to uh, raise our understanding of the situation and uh, all together I mean, to explore how we can proceed from here. Uh, we appreciate to all, all experts on the panel. I think we can give them a big applause. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you, Ambassador Cho, for moderating that session. Um, before we take a break, I just want to invite all of you. To Our third session is moderated by Dr. Sumi Terry, a senior fellow with the Korea Chair here at CSIS. Um, and the title of today's session is The Regional Dynamics East Asia and Beyond. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Uh, last panel of the day. We saved the best for last. Um, today, we already covered in the morning session alliance issues. We've covered North Korea. And with this panel, we're going to sort of go beyond and widen our discussion and talk about the region. Um, there's a lot to discuss, obviously. Um, for China, North Korean nuclear drama is playing out in the context of US-China uh, mistrust, uh, strategic rivalry, and deteriorating US-China trade relations. Xi Jinping's visit to North Korea, um, the first by the Chinese president in 14 years, was expected but still noteworthy in terms of timing, uh, according right before the G20. Um, many see it as a signal that Xi Jinping is sending to Washington that Beijing still has critical leverage uh, over <coughs> Pyongyang, uh, and that perhaps President Xi is signaling to, signaling to President Trump uh, that maybe he should modulate his trade war accordingly if he wants to see progress uh, in nuclear negotiations with Kim. Then obviously there is President Trump's recent trip to Tokyo and Prime Minister Abe's uh, desire to meet with Kim. Um, Kim Jong-un has now met with President Xi Jinping five times. 
President Trump, uh, President Moon Jae-in three times, President Trump twice, and Putin once, but still have not met with Abe. Um, then we obviously have G20 later this week. It was much anticipated uh, Trump uh, Kim meeting. And just last Friday, the Trump administration added five Chinese entities to US blacklist, further restricting China's access to American technology, further complicating efforts to reach a trade deal, um, and obviously stoking already very high tension uh, between US and China. So all of this going on, and we cannot ask for a more excellent and distinguished panel to discuss these and other issues. Um, no one on this panel really needs an introduction, and you have a full bio. So I'll just make the introductions very brief so we can start the discussion. We have on my left, Ambassador Kurt Campbell, Chairman and CEO of the Asia Group, Chairman of the Center for New American Security, former Assistant Secretary of State uh, for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, where he is widely credited as being a key architect of Pivot to Asia. We have left of him, Dr. Chong um, Jae-ho. He's a professor of international relations at Seoul National University. Prior to working at SNU, Professor Chong worked as an assistant professor at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He was a CNAPS fellow at Brookings, Korea Foundation visiting professor at Benmin University. Um, left of him, Dr. Thomas Christensen is a professor of public and international affairs and director of China and the World Program at Columbia University. He arrived in 2018 from Princeton University. He also formerly served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. And then we have um, Dr. Kim Sang-jun, Professor of Political Science at Yonsei University, also performs the role of Director of Center for Japan Studies at Yonsei University. He's a well-known Japan specialist in Korea. So I think I'm just going to give, um, ask each panelist to just give a brief opening remarks, no more than five minutes or so, to set the scene uh, for us. Um, and, and we'll start with Ambassador. Yeah. Great. Well, Sue, you've really summarized very nicely recent events. And just as a moment, want to pay respects to our good friend, Victor, and congratulations on 10 years of a wonderful program here at CSAS, and we'll have a chance to commemorate it uh, later. We're all grateful for the opportunities to gather. It's often said in almost every opening statement about global politics that we're living in a strategic period of flex. You could say it at almost any, any time over the last 20, 25 years. But I think if you uh, look at the situation today, um, there is more strategic uncertainty and angst around primarily the American role in the world uh, than we've seen uh, even perhaps before the close of the Cold War. And I would suggest to you that the good way shorthand to think about it is through three numbers, 70, 40, 20. And I'll go through it very quickly, Sue. So, if you think about um, the last 70 years, it has been largely about a substantial American endeavor um, to create and to support uh, a global operating system that is an intricate web of uh, strategic commitments, alliance formulations, the support for freedom of navigation, peaceful resolution of, uh, of disputes, a framework that has been very good for Asia. We've seen the longest period of prosperity, a very strong commitment on the part of the United States to the maintenance of peace and stability, and uh, remarkable growth uh, uh, throughout the region as a whole. 
that period and that framework that has been very good for us, I would argue, is coming under challenge as never before by two nations in particular. The first is perhaps understandable. China would like to adapt parts of that framework. Parts of it have been very good for China, but parts of it, frankly, China would like to adapt and adjust uh, towards uh, 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 fulfilling and supporting uh, China's arrival on the global stage. That's perhaps not uh, uh, as big of a surprise. I think the bigger surprise is the other main challenge has come from the United States. Many questions uh, across the political spectrum, clearly with President Trump and his team, but also on the left in American politics, question about for deployed American engagement over ambitious American pursuits, trade, et cetera. I'd, I'd uh, encourage all of you to take a look at this poll that just came out from the uh, Center for American Progress that makes very clear that this once very robust group of American supporters for the so-called uh, liberal international order has dwindled very substantially. And I think what we all have to recognize is some of those beliefs that most of us share are under siege and are being questioned, particularly in the United States, as never before. And even if President Trump is no longer president, I think his biggest contribution will be to raise questions about America's role in the world. So, so that's extraordinarily important. And I think we're only at the beginning stages of thinking about what comes next. And those who would suggest that an election could be about res resurrecting the status quo antebellum. I, I don't think they're paying attention to what's going on inside the United States. The second number, 40, some of us I see around the room, we were in Beijing a couple of weeks ago for the, uh, the China Development Forum, and at the same time, Chinese friends invited, really for the last time, the architects of engagement uh, between the United States and China to celebrate the 40-year uh, period of engagement between the United States and China. And I think um, Chinese friends did this as uh, to send a message of how important this period in U.S.-China relations has been. But I think to see really these, these very distinguished uh, people, mostly men, really on their last legs visiting, sent an unmistakable message that this era of engagement has uh, come to a close, or at least we're on the verge of entering a new set of debates about where U.S.-China relations are going. So I would say that they're uh, one of the only areas that you find even a degree of consensus between Democrats and Republicans is a sense that, that the U.S.-China relationship requires deeper questioning about the way forward. That does not mean a descent into some horrible new Cold War, but questions about the framework of U.S.-China relations are at the top of the list. That's the 40. And 20, simultaneously at the same time, I think there is a recognition that the United States has been deeply engaged in the Middle East and South Asia for 20 years. Rarely has a great power gone on this kind of detour with so little to show for it. Remarkable loss of money, life, prestige for almost nothing. And one, actually, uh, quite negative. I think it's undermined American stature in the world and a broader recognition across the United States that we have overinvested and it's time to focus more uh, on other regions, uh, particularly the Asia-Pacific region. Any one of those developments would be 
epochal in the formulation and execution of American foreign policy. The fact that all three of them are happening together, uh, I think suggests that as we think about the Korean Peninsula issues in Asia, the level of strategic flux and the questioning about American foreign policy pursuits has perhaps never been greater. At least at the end of the Cold War, I knew where Republicans and Democrats generally would come down. I find myself currently going into meetings really having no idea where people are likely to come out on certain issues. And as much as anything, old tribal patterns tend to animate some of the strategic debates. So Sue, as we go forward in this discussion, I think we need to recognize that the level of uncertainty about the period ahead has really never been greater. Um, actually, we're going to skip, if it's okay, um, Dr. Christensen. Could you also set the stage for us in terms of great strategic competition between U.S. and China, your thoughts on various Trump administration's policies or China, especially the trade conflict, and what you believe are the opportunities and risks, dangers of uh, current strategy toward China? Thanks, Sue. Uh, I wanted to start by saying something about Victor, who was uh, my classmate. You can do that. <laughs> my classmate at Columbia University and my colleague in the U.S. government in the six-party caucus process, and uh, he's really a, a role model, I think, for uh, for young professionals because yeah. he's shown in his career that you can be incredibly successful and still be humble, and that you can be a leader without being bossy, and you can be incisive without being aggressive in tone. <laughs> And uh, he really is yeah. a, a great example for what you can achieve, uh, uh, both on a, on a professional level and on a human level. Um, you asked me about alliances, and, and, and you asked me about China. And uh, you know, my, my view is that we're in a strategic competition with China, and people forget that our biggest advantage in our strategic competition with China is our alliances and partnerships. That there's no other realm in which uh, the United States has a bigger lead over a, a potential rival. Uh, than the United States has over China in terms of alliances and partnerships. And I am concerned that uh, the overlap of our economic policies and our security policies are playing out in a way in the region, both in Northeast Asia and in Southeast Asia, that are reducing our ability to draw partners and allies toward us and uh, are making it easier for China to divide our relationships with our friends and allies. Uh, the trade war with China is very painful uh, for some of our closest partners because of the transnational production chain in which they've invested heavily. Uh, and it was in Singapore just a few days ago, and uh, their, their exports have dropped precipitously, in, in large part because of the trade war between the United States and China. Um, that's also, I was in Malaysia, uh, they're concerned about it. They're concerned about Huawei and what it means to be, have Huawei on the entity list and the things they sell to China into Huawei and they import some American parts for those, for those things that they sell into Huawei. So there's a lot of confusion and concern on that score. And then there's a broader kind of narrative about China's foreign economic policy that is not accepted by many of our partners and allies. And that is that pretty much all of China's foreign economic policy is predatory. Um, nobody's more concerned about the negative aspects of China's foreign economic policy than China's neighbors. Uh, because they've been subjected to it. So for example, in Malaysia, they were very concerned that there was a lot of corruption wrapped up in some of the investments that went to the previous uh, government under Prime Minister Najib. That's been expressed publicly. But at the same time, they see China as the one game in town for getting infrastructure built. And the new government now has made a revised deal to build infrastructure. 
When the United States says that all the economic policy is predatory, they're not just criticizing Beijing. In a sense, they're criticizing the partners of Beijing. They're calling them prey. It's very difficult to have good diplomacy when you're telling someone, you have been preyed upon. You have allowed yourself to be preyed upon. And most of these countries see China as an opportunity to build infrastructure. They worry about the downsides. They worry about uh, the negatives. But unless the United States is bringing money itself, which is only starting to happen, um, it's very difficult to sustain that narrative in a way that builds those relationships. Um, and Southeast Asia, some of them are allies, some of them are partners. In Northeast Asia, uh, Japan uh, seems nervous about the implications of the US-China uh, trade, trade war. And it's notable that uh, Japan has kind of moved into the, into the gap in a sense. Uh, trade between Japan and China has gone up in the last two years. Investment in China has gone up from Japan. Uh, so it's not really running in the same direction as our policy. And the last thing is uh, North Korea and Iran. And uh, the United States uh, has to accept, and I think President Xi was trying to drive that home with his visit to North Korea, that there's no way to put maximum pressure on either North Korea or Iran without some degree of Chinese buy-in. Because China is by far the biggest economic partner of both. And that's going to complicate the US-China relationship moving forward. I think in particular, Iran is. Uh, because we're going to want to put maximum economic pressure on Iran. We don't have that much. Uh, additional room to sanction Iran ourselves. So we're going to be pressuring Chinese entities and uh, the Chinese government to pressure Iran more. And that's going to be very difficult in the current environment since we've already got the trade war and we've got uh, Huawei, which is really a multifaceted issue, Huawei. Um, but I think the one that really got people's attention, and I was in a track two in Singapore with a Chinese uh, think tank just a few days ago, um, one of the things that's really gotten people's attention in China is the entity list, which seems different than, uh, than not allowing Huawei into one's infrastructure. This seems more like we want to cripple Huawei. We want to keep Huawei from developing as a company, and we want China to keep China from developing as a country in the high-tech area. Um, and that seems much more like a sort of Cold War position to them than the other aspects of the Huawei case. So that's my basic take on it. I've been very interested in recent months in the nexus between economic policy and security policy. And I return to my, my basic concern that I really believe we're a lot more powerful than China. I've been arguing that for years. I think China's plenty powerful enough to spoil our whole day, so I don't dismiss its military modernization and its growth in power. But I still think the United States is much more powerful than China. And one of the main reasons the United States is much more powerful than China is our alliances and partnerships. And I feel like we sometimes forget that uh, our direct policies towards China have big impacts on those allies and partners in ways that can actually work against our interests and in the interests of a strategic competitor. Thank you. Professor Zheng Jiehou, um, how do you assess the changing um, strategic landscape of the Northeast Asian region, rise of China, China growing more formidable militarily, economically, US pursuing America first principle, perhaps no longer so dependable as an ally to South Korea? Um, we talked about all these uncertainties that Ambassador Campbell talked about. What is your assessment on the regional dynamics um, and the sources of various uh, tension in the region? Let me also uh, start by echoing what uh, the uh, previous speakers uh, said about Victor and the CSIS Korea Chair Program for the last 10 years. Um, 
when I got out of graduate school uh, in the early 90s, people used to talk about globalization, orderly society, and so on and so forth. But I think that era is probably gone. Um, the healthy regionalism is seriously challenged, and international liberal order uh, is flawed now. So, um, and nation states are coming back very strong, and everybody's talking about national interest. And particularly uh, the issue of uh, power transition and degrees of hegemonic instability is being felt everywhere in the region of East Asia. And that is what I'm going to focus on uh, for the next few minutes. Um, I think basically uh, US-China strategic competition has begun. And I think it is being manifested in, in the form of uh, third-party coercion. Or you can even call it a uh, regional bipolarization or even proxy competition. So pressure is coming from both the US and China to the regional states. So basically the exclusivity question of are you with us against us? Uh, I think that pressure is being felt by many countries in the region. I've, I've been also to Singapore, Malaysia, and other countries uh, in February. And I mean, people I've talked to in those in those countries were also having that particular strategic dilemma uh, sandwiched between Washington and Beijing. In the case of uh, ROK, since 2011, we have been having uh, about eight or nine different issues over which uh, we had a very acute strategic dilemma, starting with uh, RCEP, TPP, the choice between RCEP and TPP, whether or not to join uh, AIIB because Washington was against it, and whether or not to support uh, the, the Chinese agenda at the SICA meeting in Shanghai 2014, whether or not to go to the V-Day commemoration at the, in the Tiananmen Square in 2015, and whether or not to deploy the thought system in 2016, and, and that still continues. And then the South China Sea issue, uh, and then Huawei, and Indo-Pacific uh, initiative, and so on and so forth. I think the frequency will uh, uh, only uh, increase down the road. Um, these issues are very complicated. For instance, the Huawei issue. I think at least three issues are involved. First of all, uh, the technical uh, proof. I mean, backdoors is a possibility, uh, but you know, uh, it's very difficult to uh, prove. Second, uh, double standards. Uh, I think there might be some mirror image involved in, in this particular issue. There is also a flipping issue. Uh, for instance, uh, among the five eyes countries, you don't even have a consensus. Maybe four eyes and a wink or even less. <laughs> so, uh, um, and South China Sea issue, of course, uh, ROK is a third party to the issue. But last year, there was a uh, very close encounter between American and Chinese naval ships, uh, Decatur and Lanzhou, uh, within 50 yards. But it was the US ship that made the first defensive maneuver. So what does that tell us about the reassurance to the region? So there are a lot of questions which cannot be answered very uh, clearly. Uh, and I think uh, 
the strategic dilemma that regional states have about this particular strategic competition between Washington and Beijing uh, will only continue, and that is a big problem for the regional states. I'll stop there. Thank you, Professor Zhang. Dr. Kim Sang-jun, um, can we move a little bit away from China and let's talk about Japan and South Korea-Japan relationship? South Korea-Japan relationship, obviously, still currently is one of the most troubled relationship between mature liberal democracies. Um, and from Washington's perspective, this continued poor relationship between the two allies really jeopardized important U.S. interests, um, including making trilateral cooperation over North Korea policy more difficult, um, while hampering to, you know, our ability to respond more effectively uh, to China. So where are we in terms of Japan-South Korea relationship? Uh, okay, so the, as you mentioned, the relation between South Korea and Japan is really troublesome. How? So, actually, so the, maybe we can, we can think of it like this: not just the simply trouble and problematic. So the, it's a, where we can have a, I I can decide. I can combine three distinctive areas of problems. One is, as you know, the historical problem. And then the second is the political problems, and the third one the economic and which the multilateral regionalism. So why? So it's all these uh, distinctive area with South Korea and Japan has very very different positions and then images and understandings. I think the first of all, for example, the past issue, right? um, South Korea we do have heavily the preoccupied with colonial memory. Of course, there are diverse issues, uh, territorial issues, whatever, uh, comfortable issues. But uh, basically, I think uh, it's the understanding uh, the, about past comes from the, the colonial memory. But Japan, how about Japan? Japan is not, 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 not much about colonial memory, but usually they are one memory, fundamentally different two memories. Right? It is really hard to compromise because they do not share the common experience. I think this is one thing. The second one is political coordination, right? cooperation. Okay, okay, so the political coordination is always, I think, is very, very important, a very useful meaning. But the bilateral co cooperation between Korea and Japan, it is not that much easy. For example, South Korea, is because basically they have different stance toward China between the South, Korea, South Korea and Japan. So the, the maybe many cases, maybe US too, right? So maybe we can have cooperate political bilaterally. I think it is helpful for the, the both, both alliance, the hub and spoke relationships. But uh, South Korea, we have a very strong economic partner in China. So in that sense, I think you can you can find some huge gaps. So between the, the, the in terms of the political coordination, right? And third one is also it is multilateral economic regionalism. So the, okay, it is seemingly it is very beautiful, like EU. We all Asian people are MBEU, like a European community. But uh, you know, the, if you look into the, 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 the two different two economies, right? The, the South Korean is fundamentally, you know, eighty percent of our products is going to the exports, right? Mm -hmm. We need global market rather than regional market. And Japan is uh, more; we have a huge domestic market, and then there also quite a long history of the regional economic integration without the formal the institution of regionalism. So all three distinctive areas we have fundamental differences, I think. So nonetheless, right? Nonetheless, I think uh, as political leaders in both sides pursued diverse scenarios actually, and and the cold period, I think there is only one 
option was pursued. For example, the political coordination, as you know, the 1965 Korea Japan normalization means is political coordination. They, they ignored or the controlled caste issue, and, then, and at that time, the regionalization didn't emerge. So then in post-Cold War period, all other eight scenarios emerged, so like a Pandora's box. Why? It's because we have, if, if you have three distinct areas in the S1, S1, and then we can easily have the, the eight cases, right? And then some people, for example, and Boism, for example, he, he only emphasized the, and the economic regionalism. Right? And Kim Dae-jung Obuchi case, he emphasized the past, solved the past issue, and then regionalism. Okay? Maybe kind of the Asian-centered ideas, right? And then some liberalists, and Murayami, Kono, or the liberal South Koreans also only focused on the, the past issues. Right? So some people, this, and here again, and people are, okay, maybe U.S. supporting, U.S. supporting the, the political coordination best, rather than economic integration, or the past, the past that they want to be a, a roof, right? So, okay, with all, all these eight different cases, so political leaders pursued, they implemented their political philosophy and leadership, but the, actually right now, and in all three dimensions, areas, so nobody, nothing is, is, is pursuing the, with, with, with a strong the, the will, I think. Okay, so the, I think you see South Korea is not, now I think this is the 10th anniversary of the Korean chair here. So, but the, we are in the, in the middle of agony, I think. So Korea has a problem of past with China and current problem with North Korea. Actually, we have future problem with China, right? so, so I think uh, we are facing some difficulties, especially China with Japan. Yes, yes, yes. Could I ask about President Trump um, and foreign policy, President Trump and his foreign policy, and how do you think maybe the region is seeing him or interpreting President Trump's foreign policy? So for example, how do you think Trump's actions in Iran, or regarding Iran last week, um, are seen by China and North Korea. Um, also, you know, our allies as well um, in South Korea and Japan. Does, does President Trump's reversal or backing off from uh, attacking Iran, does, in, in, at least with North Korea and China, does it undermine his credibility, at least with those countries, uh, you know, or undermine potency of his threats? Um, with China and North Korea, you know, is there a danger of Trump looking like a paper tiger? I'm not saying it was a, it was a wrong decision, it was probably was the right decision, that regardless of that, the question is, how is his foreign policy interpreted, you think? How, how is China seeing this, for example? You know, Sue, so it's... <laughs> We're talking about uncertainties, we're just adding more to... Yeah, um, I mean, I, I would love to know how leaders uh, fundamentally make judgments on these issues. And it's difficult to, uh, to make clear assessments from what we know. My assumption would be that they view President Trump as deeply unpredictable, somewhat transactional, um, and that uh, you need to appeal to his sense of his personal role, um, potentially financial uh, 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 relationships more generally and things that um, make him look strong. I, I think so. I think many of the leaders around Asia initially felt relatively confident that they could figure out 
a way to engage with him. I think over time, we've talked primarily about the trade issues with China, but we have to recognize that there are very substantial trade issues with Japan. I mean, real threats have been issued against Japan. Um, we have not focused at all on India, what the Trump administration has done with India just since uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi was re-elected is very worrisome and I think uh, South Korean friends are always anxious that at a moment's notice there could be questions about the trade or the host nation's support. And so I think probably the watchword is deep unpredictability. I don't think anyone views um, I, I think the wrong lens is that that somehow the the president is you know not prepared to follow through. I think yeah. the leadership in Asia knows that at a moment's notice, the president could do something profoundly unpredictable and dangerous that could that could lead the region into a into a, a into an unpredictable yeah. phase ahead. So, I mean, that would be my sense, but um, there, there are those, I've, I've talked to some Japanese friends who feel that, that they understand the president and that they think we have a good relationship uh, with him. I would say to those friends, good luck. Um, but I, uh, I, I think if this goes on very much longer, I mean, every country is trying to develop a nuanced strategy that involves engaging the United States, that involves developing some independent capability, uh, working with other like-minded states, and as importantly, despite what any country is saying um, up front, I think every country is trying really hard to develop more predictable relations with Beijing. Over the longer term, I, I accept Tom's assessment, but I, I will say that the, that the debates about whether the United States is the strongest and unquestioned leader in Asia or whether the United States is in the midst of a hurtling decline, I, I can find reasonable, very smart people that will debate across uh, that spectrum. Dr. Kusisi, you agree with? Well, yeah, no, I, again, I, you know, I've been writing for a long time that uh, China doesn't need to be an equal of the United States to spoil our whole day. And I take Chinese power extremely seriously. Um, I think there's too much emphasis in my field as an academic and I think in the political world to say that a country has to be, you know, the same height as another country to pose a challenge. I mean, we've been fighting much weaker actors in, in, in uh, Central Asia and in the Middle East for a long time to no avail. Yeah. And China's certainly more powerful than any of those states. So I'm not dismissing Chinese power, but what I'm trying to emphasize is that we do have certain advantages over China and we sometimes take them for granted. And I think that we can harm those relationships that give us the advantages over China by treating the bilateral relationship with China without paying attention to the impact that that bilateral relationship has on those partners and allies. Uh, and I was in South Korea a couple weeks ago, and I heard it there, too. Uh, they're nervous about this, uh, uh, this choice that uh, Dr. Chung raised, that this choice that uh, it seems that at least some elements of the US government are asking of our friends and allies, you need to side with us. Yeah. and not with China. They don't want to make that choice. They don't need to make that choice from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. And by asking that, we sort of weaken our relations with them. We need to be more sophisticated than that. And the biggest uh, and most direct impact is in the economy. Now, you, you raised the, stuff of the, the question about Iran. I don't know what, what individual leaders draw in terms of uh, resolve, but I can say that uh, there's probably a lot of relief in the region that yeah. there wasn't a conflict with Iran. 
for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, energy prices obviously would spike, and they're much more dependent uh, on the Middle East than, than the United States. But a, a second reason is they don't want more distractions, to use, um, to use Kurt's term from uh, his book, The Pivot. Now, they don't want the United States to be tied down in the Middle yeah. East. They want the United States to pay attention to Asia. But I, I, I agree with the things that Kurt said about uncertainty. There is just incredible uncertainty. Uh, I felt it in Malaysia, I felt it in Singapore, and I felt it in, in Korea in the last few weeks. Um, and then there's uncertainty in Korea, and that's something that concerns me, is that, you know, it seemed to me uh, from what I was reading while I was there that, that, that President Trump is very pro popular with the progressives, and he's really disliked by the conservatives in Korea, hmm. uh, because he, they don't think he's tended to the alliance. They, he canceled the exercises, and, um, and he seems like he's uh, too soft on North Korea. The progressives love him because he has the summits and because of the things he said in Singapore after the first summit. Um, and I worry about that because my expectation, I'm not, you know, people said they don't make predictions. My colleague, Joy Yamamoto from the State Department, she doesn't make predictions. My prediction is the Trump administration is going to become disappointed with North Korea. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know who's left in South Korea who's going to be close to the United States because the progressives are going to be disappointed and the Trump administration is disappointed. And the conservatives are already disappointed and that worries me because I think the USROK alliance, here we are, uh, look at the title, uh, is an extremely important uh, thing for both the South Korea and the United States. And I worry that there's too much uncertainty now. And I really think canceling the exercises was a bad idea. Um, it was a really bad idea because to restart them now is to make a political message about something that should just be normal. Well, just follow up on North Korea. Um, you said on North Korea, there's no way to, in North Korea and in Iran, there was no way to exercise maximum pressure, particularly in North Korea, without China's buy-in. Where do you think China is with this? I mean, you followed his, Xi Jinping's visit to North Korea I, last I week. I agree Where's, with what Victor said. I think yeah. China's playing a long game with North Korea. It's going to be building infrastructure. It's going to include North Korea and all these things. And you know, I, I did something that is very dangerous for an academic to do in 2017 and 2018. I praised the Trump administration because I think they did a very good job of getting uh, Kim Jong-un to the table in Singapore. But I felt, you know, and I said they had to do two things to get China to pressure North Korea into the, to get to the table. They had to do two things at once which are kind of opposite and President Trump had unique capabilities in the score. They had to credibly threaten conflict and I think a lot of us were very concerned there was going to be a conflict in late 2017 um, on, on the Korean Peninsula. And at the same time, they had to convey that they didn't care about the North Korean regime and they weren't going to try to seek to overthrow it. And it's very difficult to do, do those two things at once. And the Trump administration was able to look aggressive enough to go to war and indifferent enough to say they would live with the Kim regime if it just gave up the nuclear weapons. And that's the magic combination for getting China to pressure North Korea. The problem is in Singapore, he declared victory, and predictably, according to public reports, China reduced the pressure. When China reduces the pressure, there is no maximum pressure on North Korea. And I don't expect that pressure to go back up again in a hurry, because I don't think he can, he can, the president can then create that combination of credible threat and credible indifference in the future the way he did in 2017, 2018. And I can tell you, in academia to say that, the Trump administration is doing this right, boy, you know, you really pay a price. <laughs> uh, Dr. Zhang and Dr. Kim, too. Um, Dr. Zhang talked about South Korea's difficulty, um, that issue, and South China Sea, Huawei. And 
Um, Ambassador Campbell talked about this consensus forming in U.S. Uh, on China question, just about at least about the framework. And I think I agree. I think this is sort of a this multi-pronged strategy on China. It's, there's a strong bipartisan congressional backing. There's backing among the elites. I think regardless who become who gets whether Trump gets reelected or or there's a Democratic president, um, this is sort of. I think it's, this is your sort of long term here to stay. Where is South Korea in terms of, you know, South Korea was able to hedge, to be honest, right, over between China and the United States on all these issues, particularly um, sort of hesitant to take action or, or be vocal about things that, that if South Korea is not actively involved in, like in South China Sea, regarding <laughs> China's actions in South China Sea. Where can South Korea go with this? Can they just continually hedge, or what is South Korea's, if given this reality of uncertainty? If you look at East Asian states, uh, most of them are hedging, you know, except for Cambodia and Laos, uh, which are bandwagoning, uh, except for, I don't know about Japan, Taiwan, but you know, most of the East Asian states are hatching, but hatching is a very elusive concept in international relations, uh, unlike balancing or bandwagoning. It could be a midpoint between uh, balancing and uh, bandwagoning, or it could be a mixture of balancing and engagement. It could be an intermittent switching of size. It could even be an issue-based selective support, or any combination of these four. Um, but I think, East Asian states, which have been hatching, have recently realized that it comes with uh, more cost now, because China particularly is uh, trying to impose higher costs to the countries which do not comply with its own priorities. Okay. I think many countries have experienced it, Mongolia, Philippines, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, uh, even uh, uh, Palau. So uh, it's difficult, because many of these countries have very high dependence on trade, for trade on China. And I think China knows exactly where to uh, apply pressure. You know, that's why I think the term sharp power uh, comes in. Although I think sharp power is a terrible term. Uh, but it does uh, have some uh, interesting analytical utility. Um, as for South Korea, I don't know. Um, Recently, uh, a new unit has been established within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs just to deal specifically with the strategic dilemma between Washington and Beijing. So it tells how seriously uh, the uh, ROK government is taking this issue. Could I ask just one more question and I'll open up to the floor because I'm sure there are many questions. You have, I'm wondering, could we talk a little bit about Hong Kong and Taiwan um, uh, in terms of Taiwan's view on Hong Kong, and, and what extent does Hong Kong demonstrations, which was just remarkable to see, um, may have, uh, what kind of impact did it have? Did it have a negative impact on the Chinese government? Um, and to what extent do you believe that Hong Kong demonstrations may have galvanized maybe the Taiwan's will to either defend democracy or independence? How will the events in Hong Kong perhaps impact the presidential race in Taiwan and China's uh, hope to put, uh, you know, hoping, hope for a more pro-PRC mm -hmm. government to emerge out of Taiwan. Yes. 
Well, for you okay, and so, maybe Kurt so or anybody else. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, can, I can respond. I, I've always said to my students that Hong Kong is a losing bet for Beijing in its relations with Taiwan, no matter what. So Deng Xiaoping set up this one country, two systems idea for Hong Kong with Taiwan in mind. And people in Taiwan across the political spectrum said, this has nothing to do with us. Hong Kong was a former colony, and now it's being turned over to China. Uh, we have always had sovereignty. And people in Taiwan define sovereignty differently, either as Taiwan as a nation or as the Republic of China, if you're in the Pan Blue camp. But they all believe they have sovereignty. So Hong Kong doesn't matter unless Beijing screws up in Hong Kong. Then it matters a lot. Because then people in Taiwan say, you just can't trust Beijing. So it's only a losing proposition uh, for Beijing. If it handles Hong Kong really well, people in Taiwan say this doesn't affect us. If they handle Hong Kong very poorly, then everyone in Taiwan says, you see, you can't trust Beijing, and we can't really. So I think uh, the, the, the DPP and the pan-green coalition in Taiwan received two large political gifts this year um, in their electoral prospects mm -hmm. for early 2020. And one was President Xi Jinping's speech in January of 2019, in which he emphasized one country, two systems on a record level number of times in the speech, which was never, as I said, popular in Taiwan and is, is seen by everyone as kind of unacceptable. And then the, uh, the second was uh, the, the Hong Kong issue with the, with the extradition. Um, and uh, I think that's another uh, reminder to people in Taiwan about the difficulties in reaching a settlement across the strait, and it undercuts uh, the position of those who want to have a more accommodating stance toward the mainland and the electoral campaign. So I think those were both gifts. I still don't know how it's going to play out. There's so many candidates, yeah. but I think uh, President Tsai is probably in a better place than she was before those two events by, by quite a large margin. I, I would agree with Tom. I, I would just say, though, I, I, it would be hard to underestimate what a substantial setback um, the developments in Hong Kong have been for President Xi. I, I just think it's very easy for us to underestimate the impact that's had on his leadership. I think when you talk to friends inside the U.S. government, I think several of them have been surprised that the issue that is often raised first is not tensions on trade or North Korea, is Hong Kong and the American role there. Tom could perhaps say more about that. I, I would say that um, uh, what we are seeing, I think President Xi's decision to go to North Korea could actually have been impacted not so much by President Trump, by, you know, if you're looking for a way to assert your stature, you've got to find some place that you can go without any chance of something going wrong. Probably the only place on the planet for President <laughs> Xi that a comp could accommodate that at this time is North Korea. And so I think that it's, it's entirely likely that one of the reasons he chose to go to North Korea is because of a sense of a very substantial set of setbacks in Hong Kong. There were no protests in North Korea against him. Shocking. <laughs> I lived in Hong Kong from 93 to 96. Uh, back then, I think uh, many Hong Kong people had this idea that the Shenzhen, which is a neighbor, neighboring city on the mainland, would eventually be assimilated into the Hong Kong way of life. And eventually, the, main, the whole mainland will be assimilated into Hong Kong. But now what is happening is actually the other way around. Uh, Hong Kong is being assimilated into the Chinese way of uh, thinking and living. 
so uh, when 20 years ago, the Chinese uh, Hong Kong intellectuals had the conviction that the uh, Chinese government will probably live up to the letter and spirit of the Beijing law. No change for the 50 years. But I think that day has gone. Mm -hmm. And I, now they talk about today Hong Kong, tomorrow Taiwan, and many other states in the East Asia the day after. I think we will open up to the floor. I think we have some 20 some minutes. Gentlemen over there. Could you please identify yourself? A brief question. Yes, um, Jamin Beck from Albright Stonebridge Group. My question was surrounding kind of forecasting how both the Blue House and the White House will be conducting foreign policy in 2020. It'll be the um, election year for both countries. The National Assembly will be having elections in April, while the U.S. presidential election will be, have, will be um, happening in November. How do you anticipate that this very highly politicized time for both you know, the Americans and the Koreans, especially seeing as the National Assembly is under gridlock, will impact foreign policy decision making both in bilaterally and not only that, but in the um, East Asia Pacific region as a whole. Um, okay, let's, let's, you can take yeah, a, couple let's more. a couple, like right next to him and then I think there was one, yeah. Hello, congratulations to the panel, it has been excellent. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Paz, I am at Georgetown University. Uh, there have been some collaboration between China and Russia in different issues in recent years, but it seems clear to me that this year, in the case of Venezuela and with the recent visit, the meeting uh, of the two presidents, the, the, the collaboration between China and Russia has been increased clearly. It's, it's open now. Uh, which are the consequences of this new collaboration for the Korean Peninsula? Thank you. There's a question here. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intel analyst and a former diplomat. I'm imagining uh, a day in which we lock up a couple million Muslims in the U.S., bulldoze a couple hundred of their mosques. The fury around the world would be beyond comprehension. Yeah. Embassies would burn, diplomats would be assassinated, tourists would be at risk every second of every day. Um, so I'm wondering why China gets a pass. Yeah. And the significance of this is China is creating the next generation of Muslim terrorists. And it's taking way too many lessons from the North Koreans about how to construct these camps and run them. Um, where's the global outrage? Where do, when do we start standing up and saying, no, you don't get to run the affairs of a quarter of mankind. You have lost legitimacy. Why is that so hard for us to realize? Yeah, so we have three questions. The Blue House, White House election consequences, China-Russia relations impact on the Korean Peninsula, and the last question, global outrage on China. Big Professor Kim, yeah. Professor Kim hasn't spoken in a while. Uh, Professor Kim. <laughs> oh, you want to just give me a I'll, I'll talk about the Uyghurs if you like eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind talking about the Uyghurs. Okay, so the, I, I just want to add this one thing, right? So the, about the Japan related. Yeah. So the why the, is unrelated to the questions, but the last one is a really important thing is all we think about the, the bilateral things, the multilateral things, right? So the, why Japan is really important, the cooperation between Korea and Japan is really important, multi-bilateral is really, really important. Otherwise, it's create triangular relations that are really important to the South Korea and Japan too. Right? 
So the role of US is really important. But uh, how to, without burdening or the burdening the US, South Korea, and Japan, right? It is more plural or relationship is more, much more important. Otherwise, recent CCPGT in North Korea has created a huge hard blocks that could divide into two, right? The Asian vision, I think that's the, that's the concern. Go ahead. So to the question on, the very good question on China and Russia, I actually, I actually think that the, the dynamic between Beijing and Moscow has been in play, as you suggest, for a longer period of time than we've really focused on. I believe it is more overt now, and um, uh, I think uh, I'm struck by how little this dynamic both animates our foreign policy, but the foreign policy in the region as well. So, you know, one of the developments that I think we've seen in the last week is a recognition on the Japanese side that the hopes for a breakthrough finally between Japan uh, and Russia is not going to come into being. They're not going to be able to come to terms on the status of the islands. But fundamentally, our interests would be to try to see a better relationship between Japan and, and Russia so that the sole line of engagement for Russia is not through China. And the problem here is, in fact, that, frankly, maximalist Japanese desires in negotiations. We, we should try to find a way forward so that Japan and Russia can find some middle way to work together in the Asia-Pacific region. Ultimately, if the Russia-China um, relationship uh, forms in such a way that they reinforce each other in different spheres, um, it's very bad news for the United States more fundamentally. You would think deep down that the anxiety in Russia over China's future would be enough to cause hesitations in Moscow, but it's not the case. The animosity and distrust and fundamental animus towards Washington is so great that it overcomes any concerns about working with China in the immediate and near term. I'll say something about Russia and China. It's been my impression for a long time that what brings Russia and China together is not balance of power politics. What brings Moscow and Beijing together is their mutual aversion to American regime change diplomacy. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the bipartisan fetish for regime change and color revolutions that uh, have brought them together. But even within that situation, there's a difference between Beijing and Moscow, I believe. So if you look at Venezuela, um, Beijing and Moscow both said they don't want the United States to intervene politically, militarily, or otherwise. That's traditional sort of uh, bumper sticker diplomacy of, of both capitals. But it seems like Moscow has sidled up to Maduro much more than Beijing. Beijing has kind of said, let it play out the way it's going to play out. We'll get along with whoever comes out of it. Washington, you stay out. And I think that's really the difference between Moscow and Beijing is that uh, Moscow is not a peer competitor. There's a, there's a RAND report that says Moscow is not a peer competitor of the United States. So it's not near, a near peer competitor of the United States, but it's revisionist and in, in terms of ideology. It's trying to spread authoritarianism. Whereas China is, uh, China is a much stronger competitor of the United States, but it's not actually exporting authoritarianism as an act of foreign policy. If that were to change, that would be very significant. And the excellent question about Xinjiang, I was in Malaysia and I raised this question at a, at a meeting in, in, in Malaysia. I said, you know, I was sitting in a room with, uh, with graduate students and scholars and 
you know, seven women in, in, uh, in hijab. And, um, and I said, you know, why is it that Malaysia hasn't taken a tougher position on what's happening in Xinjiang? Um, it's a mystery to me. And if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, it goes in all directions through Muslim-majority countries. This, this ought to be costing China a lot more in its diplomacy uh, than, it, than it has. And maybe it will over time. The only country that's really spoken up is Turkey. And my sense is that uh, President Erdogan, he, he's raised this not so much as a religious freedom issue, but as a Turkish national issue, because the Uyghurs are considered Turkic, mm -hmm. right? So that's not really the, 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 the principled message you want to get out there. And I'll just say, uh, out of sadness about my own country, we're not in a very good position to lead that kind of international response um, because of our own policies towards uh, Islam around the world in recent years. It just, uh, it's unfortunate. We ought to be in a great position to go to capitals, to point out to Beijing that it's going to harm its own relations, that this is no way to, to solve these problems. I mean, I'm sure we're doing that, but I think we have a lot less leverage in that process than we should because of things like the Muslim ban. Um, so it's just unfortunate. Professor Zemtewo, do you want to Can address this question? Can I say uh, I think in Korea, generally speaking, a national assembly election is uh, more backward-looking uh, in nature. In other words, mm -hmm. people, voters tend to look at what the past performance of, the, of each party was, particularly in economic terms, while the presidential election is more forward-looking. Therefore, uh, North Korean issue of foreign policy may uh, figure more prominently. Uh, so unless something happens in, the, in terms of uh, whether it's a small, middle, or big, uh, but any deal uh, regarding the North Korean nuclear issue uh, happening uh, at a timing that is closer to the election date, unless that happens, I, I don't think uh, you know non-economic issue will uh, loom large in the National Assembly election. Great. Take a few more questions. We'll get a cluster here. Uh, Richard Coleman, CBP, retired. Uh, best case scenario, from my standpoint, we survive the next 19 months and we have a new administration. Uh, what's the long-term penalty box for the United States foreign policy and destruction of the State Department? How long do you think it, uh, it would take to recover and how much encouragement should we expect? Mm. <laughs> Thank you. With China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. Uh, my question is for Secretary Campbell and uh, Chris Stenson. Um, uh, Mr. Campbell is talking about a uh, question and debate in the United States about the U.S. engagement policy with China. Uh, I'm wondering if you believe the uh, U.S. one China policy framework, which is based on three communiques and TRA is being challenged and questioned in the, in the United States. What would be the consequence if it's really changed? Thank you. There's one more right there. Good afternoon. This is Marty Van Dyne with Newsnet News. Uh, approximately an hour ago, the State Department announced that U.S. Special Representative for North Korea, Stephen Begun, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, will travel to Seoul June 27th through 30th and meet with Republic of Korea officials before joining Secretary Pompeo for the President's visit to Seoul. This seems to be an add-on 
to the initial group of folks, I guess, that were scheduled to go there. And I will be happy to listen to anyone's comment on what they think this might be uh, added on here for and what it either foresees or doesn't. Thank you. Okay, we have the three questions, the consequences of the Trump presidency on foreign policy, one China policy, whether it's being challenged, and then Steve Began joining the team. Yes. I'll start with the first good question, and um, everyone's going to have a different view on this, but I, I, think, um, I think there are some very hard lessons ahead for the United States. This would be my view. The, the first would be that you look at a succession of reasonable bipartisan administrations, Democrat and Republican, um, and you look at the status of certain kinds of negotiations. And then you look at President Trump, and you have found that in a lot of circumstances, countries have put more on the table than we would have anticipated, particularly China, but other countries would also be in that case. So the lesson there is you treat countries reasonably, responsibly, they are miserly in some of their approaches. You act difficult and unreasonably, and at least in the short term, there uh, can be potential positive outcomes on the trade front in particular. I think that's a bad lesson, but I think it is a lesson that some um, would take. I think the other issue is, I think there, the idea that you see, particularly among some of my Democratic colleagues, is that if a democratic leader is elected, that there would be some outpouring of gratitude and relief. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think what's much more likely is that we will be attacked and criticized that we had gone that direction in the first place. And they're just gonna feel more comfortable saying things that they may not be as comfortable now. They will count on the reasonableness of a new administration so that they will be able to exert their displeasure uh, more assertively. And I think that's gonna be tough for a new administration that would want a, you know, oh, thank God, you're back. There may be a little of that, but not nearly as much as, the, as we think. And I, I do believe that there are going to be elements of Trumpism that will continue. And I take, no, I take no pleasure in that. And I think it's going to be difficult. But I think he's had a much more profound impact on uh, America's role in the world than we realize now. And um, I, I think there will be a deep, fundamental rethinking of how you link up what the middle class wants in the world to what a new administration does. So I'm, I'm not sure I know what's going to go forward, but I'm certain that it will be much more difficult to resurrect a, um, a deeply predictable, confident set of interactions between the two sides. And to the question about uh, one China policy, I think the questions are much more fundamental about US relations with China um, about technology policy, about trade, as Tom and others have suggested. I don't think that is the fundamental debate. In the past, that may have been an issue that occasionally is debated on the sidelines. I think fundamentally, right now, it is about the core issues between the United States and China and economic trade policy. Um, yeah, so I wanted, to, I wanted to say something about the people leaving the State Department. Um, you know, 
It was one of the great honors of my career to, to, to serve briefly in the State Department for a couple of years with the career professionals that are there. I'm looking at Kathy Stevens here, people like yeah. that. It was just an incredible experience. And it's an underappreciated asset for the United States uh, in the security realm. That these people who learn foreign languages spend a lot of time abroad, get build relationships, um, and really understand strategy and policy across administrations. And they're there, and they're an anchor and a ballast in our foreign policy. When people like that leave, um, it's extremely damaging. You can't just replace them overnight. Because you can have a very smart person. You can get another very smart person in there. You can get a very, very highly educated person in there. But to build the experience that these people have uh, is very, very difficult and time consuming. So I think of my, uh, my colleague, my former deputy, Susan Thornton, who served 30 years in the State Department and recently left. You can't just replace Susan Thornton. Yeah. Right? She speaks Russian, Chinese. She spent all this time around the world. She gets it, right? So when she leaves, it's a big damage. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the military and not enough about the Foreign Service. Yeah. On the One China policy, I just say, you know, it, I don't want to go into a pedantic lecture about the One China policy versus the One China principle. But the US One China policy is not the same thing as China's One China principle. And it's not the same thing in a very important way is that it's very flexible, the US One China policy. V different things can be emphasized as, and be consistent with the One China policy. Um, and I would expect, uh, as administrations change and, and as, as, as challenges arise, different parts of that to be emphasized. For example, arms sales to Taiwan, they may go up because the military challenge, but that's consistent with the one China policy. If you're saying, will the United States fundamentally break out of that, that, the broad constraints of the one China policy? And it is imaginable, I can tell you how that would happen, uh, if it were to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, because uh, I think people would realize that it would not be in anyone's interest and it would not be in Taiwan's interest. And that's the most important thing. So I often say that everybody in the United States loves Taiwan. Some Americans want to love Taiwan to death. <laughs> um, Just one other thing, this, this point about I grew Tom and, and the State Department really uh, is a fantastic institution and there is real damage that's been done but it's not going to be enough to say it's going to take us 20 25 years to rebuild we, we will not have that luxury and so there needs to be some really insightful looks at how other institutions have rebuilt quickly under duress i think some of that is going to require some mid-career hires um, taking some lessons from business, other institutions. The military is an example. We have, it, in certain periods, rebuilt. It's not just money, it's how you retain, how you go forward. We're gonna have to look at some of those policies and see, and see what we can do to try to rebuild the State Department as we go forward, but it'll be very difficult because by nature, these are things that you know, take 15, 20, 25 years. Any, any other comment? You have, I feel like you have one more comment. No, I just wanted to, again, thank Victor yeah. Chow for being who he is and for mm -hmm. providing this opportunity. Because I know it's, the chair is bigger than the man, but you know, he's been in the chair <laughs> since it started. And so um, you know, I just, uh, maybe a round of applause for me. So I think we are about to go and um, celebrate and have a reception. So.
Um, thank, I want you to join me thanking the panel for this excellent discussion on the region. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Terry. Before we dismiss you to our celebration, we have a few closing remarks. We are now transitioning to the party. Um, so there is a, there is a, there is an open bar. There is.